I actually went and found some floppies so that I could look at the letters column. Oh, yeah. Because... I needed to know what people were saying. And they were like, I've always loved Madeline Pryor. I'm so glad she's back. I'm like, nothing about the incest? What about the incest? X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today for a special Yuletide greeting is Comics XF co-owner and co-host of the podcast Battle of the Atom, Zach Jenkins. Hey, Connor. Zach, how are you today? Thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me. I am very excited about being here. We get to talk about some Stuff that I am fascinated by, and I think that's the I think that's the right way to approach X Men. You don't have to love all of it, but you gotta want to know the most about it. You have to be interested. I mean, I think that if I've displayed anything over the course of this show, it's that even when I don't like a story, and even when I think you shouldn't worry about it, I'm going to make sure I know about it so that I can tell you whether or not you need to worry about it. <laughs> X-Man, Nate Gray, the character we're here to talk about today, is a character you do not need to worry about pretty much in his entirety. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't. I think that there's bits and pieces that are worth worrying about. The 75-issue X-Man solo series, for the most part, is not that. If people want to know how big the X-Men were in comics in the 90s, you don't have to look at all of the incredibly blatant X-Men ripoffs that fly-by-night publishers were doing. You don't have to look at the influence on all the other books. You have to look at the fact that X-Man, Nate Gray, a bad character... With a bad comic. ...held on 75 issues. And it's not like they were searching for, for some sort of hook for him in those entire times. By issue 15... They get Terry Cavanaugh on the book, and he writes that thing out for like six years. Yeah, the only reason it ends, as far as I know, is because Casada wanted to streamline the line with Morrison coming in, yeah. right? I mean, it's around the same time that Gen X gets canceled. and Joe Casada was like, hey, this isn't, this one, this isn't like essential, right? Like, Well, he kills them all. So it's just one of those things that's interesting is like the line suddenly got chopped. But in that 90s sweet spot when you could really sell anything with an X on it, this book sure did keep going and going. It is absolutely a fascinating distillation of what comics were like. Not in the not in the early nineties, not in the nineties that people like and have fondness of. About the chunk of the nineties when DC was doing really interesting things and Marvel was just trying to keep afloat. Yeah, I mean late nineties X-Men, I often say on this show that after the age of apocalypse, I think it's all pretty downhill until Morrison. There are bright spots for sure. I think the Siegel and Kelly stuff is pretty good. I think there's stuff that's worth reading. Siegel and Kelly has potential but never gets realized because they No, it's so brief. One, they want to go in one direction and editorial eight months in says change it all up. No, thank you. Right. The Casey Ladron cable stuff rules. Late 90s rules. Yeah. If you haven't checked it out, it has a little bit of crossover into X-Men. It's the best. No, that stuff's good. And X-Force is pretty... Eh, X-Force waffles between I really like it and it 
the road trip era is very good and then it is not the road trip era is good and it goes on for probably longer than it needs to. a little too long and then what happens after it is beautiful art for that though you got oh gorgeous you got polina and then you switch to like early jim chung yeah love that stuff yeah Good stuff. Good stuff. We just had a Jim Chung moment in the Exodus episode two weeks ago that I was really enjoying. That insane Black Knight and Cersei one shot. That is what I listened to a little bit of as I was going to pick up dinner and the line at the local Arby's was far too long. Well, if there's anything that's good for a long line, it's this show because this show does kind of just keep going. Before we get too far in the weeds on Nate, who, by the way, in case you're not familiar at all with this character, listeners, is a genetically engineered child of Scott Summers and Jean Grey created by Mr. Sinister in the Age of Apocalypse reality warp. So theoretically, he's an alternate cable, but only genetically speaking and in that he was created by Mr. Sinister because he's not Madeline's son and his conception was not like it's not the same guy, but he serves the same purpose so all of that is true in like the logic of comic book science that's 100 percent true but i know you speak this language and i speak this language too in the language of marketing he's exactly a cable in the language of marketing he's cable from the aoa and is a hot young cable yes 100 percent. he's hot cable with no cyborg parts he never got the to virus he's just a twink with a white streak in his hair who doesn't like to wear a shirt It's weird. Knowing this, I did track exactly when he stops wearing a shirt and doesn't wear a shirt for 20 years. It's beautiful. Yeah. So before we get too deep into that, I want to talk about you a little bit. Sure. You are the co-owner and operator of Comics XF, formerly known as Xavier Files. One of the most popular, I would say, places to go read criticism about these books. That's pretty cool. It is. You are also the co-host of Battle of the Atom with Adam Reck, where you guys rank every X-Men story ever, which is a daunting task. I have been on it twice. We just did essentially what I am calling a franchise-wide event where, I mean, we just need to loop Jay and Miles in again. We just got to get them get in at the same time. Ash Elaine was just on the show last week. Now you're here. I just told Jay, actually, that I would love to have him back in uh, 2022. Jay's fantastic. Oh, brilliant. Jay is secretly part of the reason why almost all of this has happened for me personally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've got a lot of respect for a lot of respect for my I just wanted to give that context. I just appeared on the show for an episode about Betsy and Kanon, if you guys like my endless pontificating on that subject on this show. So go check that out. I was previously on an Emma episode that was a lot of fun. Zach, I'd love to hear about your origin story with the X-Men. How you were in it before you how you came back. You know what I mean? I just wanna <laughs> we, can make, we can make it work. We can go chronologically. We got this down. Yeah, because X-Man, thankfully, he travels only one direction in time. He's not a cable in that way. So I'm yeah, not no, going to have too much time. He has dimension hopping problems, but not really And yet time he's oddly problems. a super straightforward character at the end of the day. It's space, not time, you know? Right, no. So I, in both space and time, was a child of the 90s. When I was growing up, like the X-Men cartoon was on. But I was more of a Power Rangers, Batman, Spider-Man guy. Like, I liked the X-Men, but they weren't my Mm go-to in the early 90s. I had a couple of the comics that I read, uh, like the Pizza Hut ones and 
you know, a few odds and ends. Love that like when that. they go into cyberspace. Oh yeah, well, cyberspace is you know no laughing matter, Bishop. So yeah, it was the age of VR troopers. Like we were all really worried about cyberspace. Yeah, yeah, they do a. If you guys haven't read that, is wild. Arcade does a VR troopers. It's literally just arcade does VR troopers. It's wild. Yeah, no, it's it's great comics, but they didn't click for me until I got I got a little bit older in around the year two thousand. I was nine years old. My dad took me to see the 2000 X-Men movie, Mm -hmm. which as an X-Men movie, okay, not what you want it to be. Not great, but a fun movie. It is a fun movie. And if you ground yourself in the year 2000 when this didn't happen, like every three weeks. Right. It was wild. Breathtaking superhero movie. Yeah. I was engaged in that. I had a dk's encyclopedia ultimate guide to the x-men that i read cover to cover constantly like i wanted to know more about these mm-hmm. it's very weird like i'd watch the movie and it's like okay but what's this weird stuff about the shadow king who's right. this was that the one with wolverine on the cover that was like yeah, that the... was the one with uh, i mean they wolverine all have wolverine on the, on the cover but i'm thinking of like the really big book that had character like it was like kind of like this show like every page was yes one character yes. had a spread and you would yeah i had that one too it was great it was fantastic and very tellingly for me as a like comics fan and reader and all that stuff it stops in the year 2000 as mm-hmm. claremont has jumped onto the revolutions era yeah it went up through revolution they show you all the all the new stuff up until about that point including x-man in his cool shaman design mm-hmm. and then nothing else to me it's like that's perfect because that's when the franchise changes. That's when you get Morrison on New X-Men. That's when you get Ultimate X-Men, which is, I want to say, not good, but <laughs> underlooked in its importance to reestablishing the X-Men and Marvel as a thing. It was a huge book. It is not good. Yeah, no. I think there's people who may have like come to the X-Men now like, oh yeah, Ultimate stuff. That's what no one understands how easy it was to get Ultimate Comics. Yeah. Every school kid, you could just find them, like, stashes of porn in the woods or something. like. Right, they were everywhere. And, like, it also... The problem I had with Ultimate X-Men when it was coming out was that the premise of it was to do a movie-verse-style simplification of the continuity. But then, as it went on, they just developed their own incredibly Byzantine and confusing continuity. And I was like, that isn't the point. It becomes more confusing than regular X-Men. They make bad decisions from Jump Street. Literally from the first arc, yeah. They have Beast on the team, and they're like, what if he wasn't blue? Just to start out, he doesn't look like Beast. Right. We're not going to simplify that. They have Betsy in the second or third arc. It's insane. They introduce Betsy as a British Asian woman, and then they do the body swap plot anyway. They do the body swap. And introduce Brian and he's white and there's no explanation. So it's just... Ultimate comics are not good. Some of them are great. I have a weird effect. From that. That's not the stuff I read. Like I ended up, I got the essential editions, the black and white like phone books that they did. I got those like a couple years later when I went to Universal Studios Orlando mm. in their Marvel world. As I am older and have moved these books several times, I cannot believe I made my parents walk around a theme park holding four of the essential editions because I used all of my vacation money on it. Yeah, I mean, those are big books. They are not small. At least they were paperback. It was like the yellow pages. It really was. They are dense. They are dense tomes. That got me through all the Claremont stuff, but I never ended up buying things 
until I did a Marvel subscription to, uh, like a mail subscription to the Kieran Gillen relaunch of Uncanny X-Men. Because mm. I was like, finally, number one, I got this. Right. Start here. Not a great moment to start. The- Love Kieran, but like Utopia era is a deeply confusing moment to jump in in a lot of ways. It is, but I was... I was also one of those guys that was reading Wikipedia articles Fair. about characters and plots. And yeah, like, if okay, you can do that, then it's can, not that bad. But I know a lot of people who tried to jump on with that number one and were like, I don't know what they're talking about. I just vibed, and it got me a lot of affection for a lot of some really dumb stuff, like Sinister being Sinister and Hope and all this stuff that I end up still adoring to this day. More or less, I started buying comics, buying comics, buying comics, going through AVX and the Bendis era, and... Then at one point, I'm out of college, I am living at my house, and I'm sitting at my table, I'm like, you know, I've been really enjoying all these comics podcasts, I like uh, Jane Miles explaining the X-Men, I should just do something, why don't I just try and rank every X-Men character of all time, Mm -hmm. and I did a bad job of that, because I didn't put any thought in preparation, I just put it out into the world, and it became a website really quick. Like, it's never been the most successful thing, but- it became a thing that there was, like, people who were making requests and, like, do this, this and I, I got a little overwhelmed, and then it's been, like, six years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say that as a semi-pro, in, in the SFF world, uh, in my day job, we call sites like yours, like, semi-pro zines, where it's, like, sure, it's not really a market with a huge amount of budget behind it or anything like that. It's fans coming together to do something that does pay people and that is regimented in some way, has a structure. I mean, I think that you have put together something that clearly endures. I mean, you fostered a lot of talent there. That's very cool. We've got good talent. We've got a lot of good access and like relationships with creators so we can actually like talk to them about their books yeah that's helpful obviously in a way that isn't just like marketing talk like hey what character is gonna show up here like we can we can dig into some things and we have a weirdly academic background of all of our staff we have like a bunch of phds i feel like who just pop in there's like at least three there's at least three phds yeah it is wild for me because my background's not in lit My background is not in arts or anything like that. I was in engineering school Mm -hmm. for four years, and then I got my master's in business. Like, do you know how many novels I had to read for school? Right. (laughs) Like, two? (laughs) If that, because I'm pretty sure any of that stuff, I got dual credit for high school, so I just got rid of all those. Oh, there you go. I like those early. That was me with math. I took one math class in college, and it was zero five zero. I don't know. Too many. Too many. It was math that gets to the point where math doesn't exist anymore, and it's very conceptual. Right, no, it becomes philosophy, which, like, that's kind of fun, but I can't get my, I can't really wrap my brain around calculus. No one should have to wrap their brain around a lot of that stuff. Regardless, I just started digging deeper and deeper into comics, and really the biggest thing was meeting people, building relationships with them that allowed me to see these books in a way that, like, I never did at the time have different readings of things that in retrospect were very obvious like kitty pride being gay for example mm-hmm. like duh like you you go back i didn't have that experience and background in my head bisexual was- to be clear like i do definitely there are some characters where i'm just like that's a lesbian like rachel summers sure. but with kitty slash kate i do think that it's definitely like a bisexual characterization but yes the fact that she's into girls is very much there if you go back to the old stuff I was one of the guys sitting there like, oh, yeah, her and Colossus are perfect soulmates. Isn't that right? And then I 
took a beat and I looked and some like, but what about this? And I said, oh, what about that? And then I started listening to people with other perspectives, other backgrounds than I had growing up in like the Midwest. And it really opened up these books for me and found different ways to see them and experience them. That's really like, if there's one thing that we try and do with the site and we're not perfect at this by any means, we have plenty of blind spots, plenty of ways we can get better. But one thing that is very important to everyone there is having a lot of different viewpoints that can all come together and experience things in different ways. Since comic stuff is dominated by cis straight white dudes, have something else some of the time that people can talk about. I think that's an important thing to do. It's something I try to do with this show. And you're doing fan like that's my favorite thing about this show is that you get people a comfortable place to experience viewpoints that are like deeply tied to who they are and what they are interested in like if you can have a religious scholar talk about freaking Benu de Paris for three hours that's something that you don't get other places and that's very cool I like that there's people who aren't just like me on the podcast every week it's really refreshing to get other opinions I don't say this to be like falsely modest. I don't think the show would work if I wasn't any good. So I think I'm pretty good. But I do think that the beauty of the show and the thing that I enjoy most about it is the variety of guests. I mean, obviously, there are people who recur, who I have like a banter with, and that's fun too. But I like getting all these different voices in, and I like that it changes so much week to week depending on who the co-host is that week. Mm -hmm. So why are we here, you and I, (laughs) talking about Nate Gray? Okay, so here's the thing. Nate Gray's not a good character, but at some point in running the site, I became intimately connected with Nate Gray. It, okay, intimately sounds not it. Uh, Nate Gray became part of my soul, I think, to the point I don't like Nate Gray. I did get a custom Nate Gray commission last weekend. You sure did. It was lovely. Oh, it's by uh, Marco Falia, who was the artist on Marvelous X-Men. Uh, also drew the panel where Sauron doesn't want to cure cancer. He wants to turn people into dinosaurs. Love that. Yeah. I was talking to him. He's like, yeah, should I just like, I don't know. Everyone seems to like that. I, I always think maybe I should make that my con banner. I'm like, I was no, literally Marco, about to say that should be the banner behind him. Yeah. You don't understand how much that needs to be your con banner. It's like a gigantic internet meme. It's huge. Funniest thing about that, and this is off topic, but the most shared version of that is a scan of it instead of like an actual screen cap, and that makes me laugh every time. Well, it's old school, right? Like it takes me back to the scans daily days when you would have these like scanned pages being passed around through the internet, like Dead Sea Scrolls, because it wasn't easy to get your hands on anything. (laughs) But but all all that all that aside, no, uh, Nate Gray was a character that like he listen, he's the butt of the joke. If you're not going to make fun of the super buff Lyfieldian 90s characters, Nate Gray's right there to help you out. Right, because he's sort of the other kind of 90s character, which is, you know what what I think of Nate Gray? I kind of think of, do you remember when they rebooted the Looney Tunes as the Lunatics? Connor, I think about that constantly. Okay, so you get me. Like, that is sort of... Constantly, yes. So for Gen Z, there was a moment (laughs) when they tried to... The Looney Tunes from Space Jam. Yeah, the Looney Tunes are in Space Jam. Everybody loves Space Jam, right? There was a new one with LeBron. Maybe you guys saw that. I'm just kidding. I know that I know that Gen Z like can be out of college now, but that 
distresses me to think about, so I don't. Can they? I think so. It's that's not acceptable. I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't like it. Passage of time. I don't like it. Billie Eilish was born after nine eleven. Yeah, I know. He just made a face because oh. every time I think oh. about that, it really chills my blood. I'm not, I'm not that old. I can't. I can't deal with this. This is not the point. You have children. You're younger than me. I'm ancient at this point. I got. I got a five year old. Okay, so you have child singular. Sorry that hey, well, I didn't keep I track of your. Too, but the oh, okay, the so there one. you it's go. Like, I'm saying I was like I was pretty sure anyway, there's more than one. The, Doesn't oh, matter. Man. Connor, have you looked at the lunatics designs recently? I haven't actually. Let me Google them. Oh my gosh it it has been a while since I have seen these. It's they are black, like skin tight. Yeah, I remember suits. them being basically like they're Looney Tune Power Rangers, is what they are. Yeah, but they also they look like Superman blue. You remember like when there was like a oh. Superman red, Superman blue thing, and they were like they look like that kind of. It's all pulling. This is the nadir of the '90s, like extreme excess as it and it was like widely mocked because this happened in the aughts so it was like kind yeah, of this a holdover of that concept of like we're gonna just take it and make i mean like the new mutants to x-force is a 90sification of a book like a lot of sure. books had something like that happen to them a lot of media properties had something like that happen to them the real adventures of johnny quest like i can think of so many where it's like this time it's serious you know <laughs> This was probably like the last gasp of that notion mm -hmm. to the point where it was now, it wasn't even like camp. Like people didn't appreciate it for kitsch factor. People were offended when this was announced. They were just like, this is perverse. I was 12. I was their target audience. And I was like, no, no, you guys did this one wrong. This is not a lunatics podcast, but the point is that lunatics, and that's L-O-O-N-A-T-I-C-S, if you want to Google them yourself. You do. X-Man Nate Gray is the lunatics of an X-Men character. Like, it's just sort of, yes. or you know what he is also like, and this is not to disrespect it because it's pretty good, but he's Batman Beyond. Oh, yeah. He's that. And Batman Beyond is a very rare example of this impulse creating something very good but in this case like what are the kids into and how can we like do that if it were five years earlier he'd be skateboarding everywhere you know what i mean like he's just very much a character who feels like he was created by focus group committee oh yeah for sure and nate gray nate gray gets that way because he starts out He's a tie into Age of Apocalypse, which is great. Perfect. I know it hasn't come up a lot on this podcast. Well, because it's an alternate world. But yeah, I mean, I think AOA is great. The original event. AOA rules. Nate is the weakest part of it, but AOA rules. You can tell, though, that he's going to... I mean, we didn't know he was going to stick around. It was very shocking at the time. But like going back with hindsight, of course he's going to stick. Like This is the character that they're giving you who's going to stick around. He's the repercussions of Age of Apocalypse. Like, he's, he's around. He is immediately connected to everyone yes everyone is connected to him he's spider-man's best friend it's so important that he is peter parker's best friend for a while yeah he like has dinner with mary jane and aunt anna and they like he knows all about aunt may like they're like real tight because he's telepathic and he has no boundaries so amazing spider-man 420 they have christmas together they it's sure very do good. they do not blaze it unfortunately but Nate Gray would absolutely blaze it. He's a hippie cult leader in Central Park. For he a would. I'm just saying they don't in the in the comic. You know, well, their comics code, and then Casada is very against smoking. I understand I know. that's not a bad impulse, but 
I'm very vocal on this show about how I don't like it because while I understand the impulse, I think also like whether or not someone smokes is a real characterization thing that it's a shame to lose. And if you go back to the old material and you look at which characters do smoke and which characters don't, AOA is a great example because mm-hmm. in AOA, I was just rereading this specific story because we were doing Exodus. Right. Dazzler in the AOA, because she's not a singer, she doesn't give it. I mean, right. of course, a lot of singers smoke. Yeah, hold on. that. <laughs> yes, but the idea here is to emphasize how differently her life went. She's a chain smoker. Right. That is just a cool bit that you don't need them to lay it out for you because you can just look at it. It's a visual medium, right? Like, we get the difference here. Anyway, so Nate Gray comes out of AOA. How did your soul bond with him, though? Like, this is what I want oh to... Oh, my gosh, yeah, we've gotten very off track Yeah, here. no, that's fine. I'm. This is my job. I steer us back onto the track, except when it's me who's doing it, but, you know. Sure, 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 sure. So what had happened is I started... He he was the butt of the joke for a little bit for me. And then at a certain point, one of the jokes was made real by one of my friends sending me hardbound, custom-made copies of every Nate Gray comic. Like, you have custom X-Men Omnibuy. Yeah, like, it's 75 issues in three volumes. <laughs> it's so big, oh my god. It's a lot of comics. And then I decided, I guess I have to become a Nate Gray guy. As I'm reading this, and this is this is like a recurring bit on the podcast for a little bit, it's a whole thing. As I'm reading this, we have a guest come on the show who helped finance this endeavor and sent me that day the art from X-Men Disassembled, uh, where Nate Gray comes back looking like Jesus. Yeah. Then in the mail, I mysteriously get a blanket of Nate Gray from the Age of X-Men, and I'm sitting here like... How did Nate Gray become such a big part of my personality? I don't even like him. Okay, fine. Let's just go with it. Let's just go with it. And he just became so tied to what was a very unhealthy Twitter bit that I was doing. But hey, it is what it was. I mean, listen, if you had told me only a year and change ago that by this point in my life, I would have sold this many Zaladane t-shirts. I uh, really would not have anticipated that. It's the weird ones that people grab. Well, that's the thing is because that started absolutely as a bit, but now if I do ever get to write a Marvel comic and don't somehow incorporate a reference to Zaladane, I feel like the townsfolk will revolt against me with torches and pitch. You know what I mean? It's one of those things. It'd be weird if you didn't do it at this point. Like at this point, you got to, you know, like, and that's not promising anything because, you know, I can't imagine that conversation with your editor. Like, so bear with me. This character, she appeared 12 times. She died in 1991. Picture it. You never know. Crazier things have happened. Listen, I've seen I've seen a lot of weird, crazy things in comics, especially from the interaction of social media and comics. I can't get over the Dracula thing that Ben Percy did with Black Tom. That's so funny. Not to plug my own thing, but we do we do have a interview with Ben Percy on our show that should be out around this time. It'll be out by this is probably going up last week of December. So Yeah, so about about this time, Ben does go into that. <laughs> I hope so. That's great. It is very fun if you guys want to know a bit more about that. But I've seen things that couldn't have been anything but references to weird, dumb fan culture things. Right, yeah. That like 10 people are going to get, but those 10 people are going to freak out. Are going to think this is really funny, yeah. 
that's just kind of how it happened. And it was all coincidental. Like, I'm not saying I brought Nate Gray back and started the Age of X-Men. I'm saying that two things happened at the same time, and I find it very funny that they did. Yeah. No, I get it. I mean, listen, it's like a Bader-Meinhof thing also, where, like, people who are not as obsessive as we are Mm -hmm. will hear something on the show, and then it will come up in the comics, and they'll be like, you did this. But sometimes it is really weird and coincidental. Like, I happened to talk about Amanda Mueller. I mean, you were the one who was like, this is insane. Oh, yeah, Black Womb! I talked about the Black Womb on two sequential episodes, and then they announced Fabian's one-shot X-Men Legends that's bringing her back. Everyone was like, that's... And I was like, no, this one, this is crazy. But it's completely a coincidence because he would have pitched that like a year before I did those episodes and submitted the script months before I did those. Like, it's complete coincidence and he didn't tell me about it. So it's just how it happens sometimes. It's all monkeys with typewriters except for they have just a limited amount of weird stuff. Right. They're like, how can I figure out what the Sugar Man's up to these days? Yeah, exactly. And Sugar Man X-Men fan 616 is going to be like, oh my gosh, Sugar Man's back. Let's Talk Sugar Man will be overjoyed. I'm actually very happy for my friend who runs the Let's Talk Rubbermaid account. Only good Let's Talk is Let's Talk Rubbermaid. So happy for them. I am obsessed with Let's Talk Rubbermaid and I am very, very happy Shout out to you. You know who you are. Because Rubbermaid, for people who aren't aware, Rubbermaid is appearing in... She's an Academy X character who's very obscure and blew up on the bus. She's appearing in uh, Fabian's Infinity comic right now on on the Unlimited app. For the record, I did technically own Let's Talk X-Men for a bit. It was for a bit. Fair enough. I didn't use it for anything except for dumb jokes. I just don't... Like, Twitter fandom is not something I'm versed in, so I was... I didn't understand what the Let's Talk accounts were. I sort of, like, put it together, right? Like, context clues. But until I embraced Let's Talk Rubbermaid... And also just embrace the fact that my account is a lot of the time just a let's talk Madeline Pryor or let's talk Candy Southern account. That's, you know, just that's going to happen. The funniest was a listener was like, I just went back to the video you and Patrick Willems did in 2017. And you mentioned Candy Southern within the first four minutes of the video. See, people people don't really change. People don't really change, do they? Wow. It's like what Monet once said to Emma Frost. She's like, no, I don't think they do. Actually, I'm keeping my eye on you. So what do you, what do you like about this character? Right. So here's what I like. Okay. What do I like and what do I find oddly humorous are two different things. The incest angle is hilarious. Like, I mean, there is nothing like it hurts me because apart from sisterhood, which I have found a get out of jail card on thanks to Matt Fraction. The only thing that really gives me trouble in my work as Madeline Pryor's personal defense attorney is X-Man. The thing about the incest in X-Men, and we were going to get there eventually. We were going to get to the incest, so let's just start talking about it now, I guess. Here's the thing. There is less incest in X-Men than you would think based on how much people talk about it. <laughs> I mean, the, the cover of 41 really is so infamous that it's impossible to... That's the one, for people who are not familiar, that's the one that is literally just like fetish art from DeviantArt of a 50-foot-tall Maddie trying to devour Nate Grey whole and like licking her lips. So I took, I took, I re, I say reread, I skimmed 
uh, 75 issues of X-Men recently. Let me be clear. When I say reread on this podcast, I do not mean I poured over every single panel because right. we all have lives. But yes, I too reread a lot of X-Men for this podcast, by which I mean, let me go check out issues that seem to be important that I don't remember very well, or particularly the most insane scenes that I do remember I need to go back right. over. So <laughs> My only note for number 41 is 41 has the greatest cover ever. It's evil and I hate it. Here's the thing. It sure is something. There's less incest than you would think is a terrible sentence to ever say. But in this case, it's because of a very weird... The thing about the incest in X-Men is that it's built on this very strange concept that pervades the entire book, which is that a clone, I guess, like isn't really related to you. Because here's the thing. He never says, like, Madeline, this is incest. Like, nobody ever says anything about no it. No one's talking about That's it. What's so Except for weird. everyone who's reading it who's like, Every single person wild. who's reading it. And I was, I actually, I actually went and found some floppies so that I could look at the letters column. Oh, yeah. Because... I needed to know what people were saying. And they were like, I've always loved Madeline Pryor. I'm so glad she's back. I'm like, nothing about the incest? What about the incest? So here's... Listen, they, they were selective for what they printed, but they do. Well, right, because like they never have sex, but you could assume that they are. It's definitely implied. The there's, there's, it's, it's not as much incest as you think, but there's definitely but there's more than it's definitely incest. And they do kiss on panel at one oh, point. Oh, yeah. Which is horrible here's the thing though it is this repeated what made it click together for me was the arc with strife because the most mm -hmm. insane thing in that arc and the whole arc is insane but the most insane thing in that arc is that strife starts hitting on madeline and wants to like make her his yep. consort now yep. i could understand if you're a crazy person the thought that no honestly i know lots of crazy people who wouldn't go there i can understand if you're specifically the crazy people writing this book no disrespect if you're listening God bless you. Okay, Madeline isn't really his mother. She's a clone of his mother. I'm sorry that's still deranged, but like, uh, okay, not technically incest if you want to think of it that way. I think it still is. Doesn't really matter if that's, like, if that's the premise you're operating on, okay. She is Strife's mother, though. She is Strife's mother. That's the, that's the trick, is that she's very much Strife's mother. She very much is Strife's mother. So the question then that I was like, so how do they justify this issue? And then I'm like, oh, I guess because Strife is a clone of Nathan, just like Maddie isn't really Nate's mother, Strife isn't really Maddie's son. And what I'm trying to say is this is demented. There is no <laughs> explanation that makes any of that in any way acceptable logical like no strife should not be first of all strife is gay okay strife you're not wrong strife's got some weird parental issues he sure does never worked he out he sure does and he also loves to fuck with his male enemies by making insinuations about their female love interests like in that same story he taunts cable about jen scott strife would do this like, Strife, I get. Well, see, I don't think Strife would do this about his actual literal mom. I just don't. Like, even in Executioner's song, Gene has, like, that weird robot hands moment, but he doesn't touch her in the way that he does touch Scott, actually, which is, like, I mean, like, Strife is weird. I'm not, I'm not saying Strife, but, like, I will guy. make you my queen mom is, like, much weirder, right? This is a weird story. It's weird. I do actually, from a, like, 
thematic standpoint, I think it makes perfect sense to, like, have Maddie as a foil for Nate as the not really real version of a character, but still, like, trying to live her life and do that. I think there's a lot of ties and thematic through lines. I think the early part of the book is actually really great with her. It's just that the undertone between them is so weird. It just shouldn't be sexual? It just shouldn't be sexual. They just, they shouldn't be hooking up? He creates her. So, for people unfamiliar with this story. Oh, yeah, yeah, we should. So, he comes let me go back. back. From AOA. Let me go back. You guys have all let me go back. Let me go back. Let me go back. You've all probably read Age of Apocalypse because lots of people read Age of Apocalypse. It's good. If you haven't read Age of Apocalypse, because we don't really go over it that much on this show, guess what? Exciting news for you. The Cerebro character file this week is going to go over a bunch of Age of Apocalypse stuff because you need to know it. At the end of Age of Apocalypse, the X-Men use the Macron Crystal to restore... Because here's the thing about Age of Apocalypse. It's not actually an alternate Earth. It's a rewrite of the timeline. It's like what Moira does, basically. Yeah. So it is Earth-616. It will later be given the number just for, like, handbook purposes. And then in sequel stories that have extremely diminishing returns the longer they go on, it turns out that that reality does persist as its own timeline. Hold on, I gotta, I gotta ask this, and this may be completely outside of the episode, but I'm very curious. I agree that m- almost every return to Age of Apocalypse is not what you want it to be. Did you ever read the spinoff of Uncanny X-Force where they return and it's like David Latham's writing it mm-hmm. from Stray Bullets? That's better than the other ones. For sure. That's all. It's just weird. Yeah. That's just weird comics at that point. Yeah. I mean, there's like, at that point, it's just kind of something else. You know what I mean? Like, I feel about the returns to AOA, like I feel about the Star Wars prequels. Nothing here is enriching the original trilogy of movies, and many things here are detracting from the original trilogy of movies. And that, I think, is the big thing with like a sequel or a revival or a prequel is like, will this harm the... And now, you never really can because the original thing will always exist. But if you are trying to build it as an ongoing... It can absolutely damage the franchise potential of a thing. Luckily, everything is connected now and literally everything in the world is a tie-in or a sequel or a multiversal expansion of a previously unrelated thing. We're there now, and we've just... So now you can't escape the metaverse. It's too late. But so, the Age of Apocalypse ends with the X-Men using the Macron Crystal to restore reality. It all goes really horrifically. There's lots of horrible stuff. I mean, Gen Next, which is the best of the AOA minis, just read it. That's honestly... Okay, yes, I hate the sequels more than anything else because it fucks up. Hold on, because we've had this conversation before. The fact that Husk is Zorn, it's great. Making anybody Zorn is intrinsically funny. But it really ruins that story if she doesn't die. It does. The way that she died in the original story. Because now on the Marvel wiki for the rest of time, Paige Guthrie of Earth 295 does not die at the end of Gen Next. And that's not even really a spoiler, guys, because that's the point. Is yeah, like, y'all, that's why it's good. Gen Next is, is that like... It's a real downer of an ending. Here, because we were just talking Star Wars. Gen Next is like Rogue One, except for at the end of Rogue One, if all of the worst people lived. Right. Only the good characters yeah. died horribly. Anyway, Nate ends up fighting Holocaust, who we discussed in the Exodus episode, Apocalypse's glowing sun, like S-O-N, not S-U-N, like a glowing, he he's radioactive. glows because he's a skeleton in a, in a radioactive tank. They're fighting and Nate ends up stabbing him with a shard of the Macron crystal and they end up thrust through time and space as the reality warp shifts. They 
are both spat out in the present of Earth 616. What you're not mentioning is that Sugar Man was living in Nate's boot at the time, so Sugar Man also comes back, but 30 years in the past. Well, so, yeah, at the same time, the Dark Beast and the Sugar Man are blasted into the past of Earth 616, where then they become the architects of things that had not been explained and that frankly didn't really need to be, but okay. The Sugar Man is behind the Genosian technology and the Dark Beast created the first Morlocks. I actually really hate that because the Morlocks should not be something that ever was created, in my opinion. absolutely shouldn't, but the retcon re-justification, whatever, for the Mutant Massacre being that Sinister's petty. Yeah, when it turns out that Sinister got rid of all of them because he was like, someone's copying my work. That's like, That's great. funny. But Shouldn't have happened. Great that it happened that specific way. Sometimes you can find a silver lining to a bad retcon. Well, I mean, that's X-Men, baby. We're finding these very silver linings here. Right. And so he arrives... He is all alone, and he doesn't really remember who he is. He also doesn't remember the reality warp. So he, you know, is, like, expecting things to be AOA, which they're not. He was created by Mr. Sinister in AOA as a weapon to potentially destroy Apocalypse, who's Sinister's master. He was, therefore, set free. He thought he escaped, but he didn't really escape. Sinister let him out, and he was raised by Forge, who in AOA is a theater troupe director. It's Forge yeah. and Sauron and yeah, Sor- Mastermind. Sauron's really into Shakespeare, and I love that for Yeah, him. it's the Sauron with an OA that we talked about in the Sauron episode. They're eventually joined by Sonique, which is Siren's code name in this reality, and she and Nate fall in love, which is extremely weird when you think about her relationship with Cable in the regular timeline just before this, if you go back to the Siren episode. Luckily, it never matters. It will never come up again because Teresa doesn't remember any of it and Nate never mentions her, so... Or tries to talk to our Terry, so it doesn't really matter. But he gets there, and I know you'll get into the character fire, but he bounces around our world, or the 616 world, for a while with, at the beginning... Doing something that is insane, which is recreating Madeline Pryor. Right. So he lands, he crash lands in Switzerland. Always Switzerland. It was Exodus in Switzerland, too. And they go back to Switzerland later. But so he's in the snow. He had never seen snow because the Age of Apocalypse is like so polluted that there is no snow. He is like, help me. And he subconsciously reaches out for a mother and tries to contact Jean Grey, who he doesn't know is his mother, but like this is kind of like a Dune moment where he like accesses his ancestral memory, right? His like psychic distress call for mommy reaches out for Jean, except it doesn't find Jean. It reconstitutes Madeline Pryor from the echoes and fragments of her psychic essence that have remained on the astral plane since her death in the Inferno. I mean, that's a better explanation than I would have said, which is a, is a magic thing. She just Maddie's shows up, now. but they, they later, just here. the explanation that's given is that he built her. He built this psionic yeah. ghost of Madeline. Madeline, though, also has no memories. All that she remembers is Mr. Sinister and the X-Men did bad stuff to me. And she's immediately seduced by Celine. Yeah. Like immediately she is immediately approached by celine who in a very like 
stalking Rachel kind of way, clearly senses Madeline's connection to the Phoenix or to higher cosmic telepathy or whatever it is that the gray women are so connected to and seduces her into becoming her new apprentice in sorcery. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like it's it's a running B story in this book for like twenty issues, and then it goes nowhere because the writer changes. It like completely no, falls. They off. don't. That's the thing. That's the thing. Loeb starts this. Ostrander oh, picks it up at ten, and then Terry Cavanaugh picks it up by fifteen. Right. And the matter no, stuff. Right, Cavanaugh is the 25. one who does the Hellfire stuff. Yeah, because I was sitting here. I had the exact same expectation. Because I was thinking, like, 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 Cavanaugh doesn't start it, but. No, you're right. Someone picks up. No, it's Ostrander's on there for the uh, crossover with Excalibur. Yeah. And the crossover with Cable. He does two crossovers after Loeb's like, I want bigger things. It has to be then, it has to have been editorial because the pivot is that really abrupt moment in 52 when Ness gets killed off. Of Ness. And Madeline leaves. Do you know anything about Ness? No. Because I frankly no. have no idea. I don't know and I don't care. Guys, Ness may also be another clone of Cable. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. But that issue, it's like rocks fall, Ness dies, Madeline is depleted of her powers and leaves never to be seen again. Like, the book really pivots hard. It really does pivot. And that feels like an editorial mandate because you're right, the writer doesn't change there. It's a pivot you can write in at some point that she's replaced by the Red Queen right about there. That's where it has to have happened. But I have a I have a more comprehensive theory of the Red Queen that we'll get to after the break. I want to get to the Red Queen stuff. Well, actually, you know, this might be a good moment for us to pause because... Uh, People need to know. This no, is what I'm right. saying. Like, I, I feel like the more we're trying to explain this, the more confusing I think it's probably becoming. So let's just do the character file. I will give you Nate Gray's complete publication history from X-Man number one the first time in AOA through his solo series, through New Mutants, through Disassembled, all of that stuff. And then we will return for more with Zach Jenkins. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Nathan Gray, called Nate and sometimes called the X-Man, is a popular character of the 90s who spun out of the 1995 franchise-wide event, Age of Apocalypse. Nate was one of a handful of characters to survive the end of the AOA reality warp and emerge on Earth-616, where he became the protagonist of the ongoing title X-Man, which ran from 1995 to 2001. After sacrificing his life to save the world, would-be Messiah Nate returned for a few stories in the 21st century before emerging as the antagonist of the 2019 franchise-wide event, Age of X-Man. X-Man by Jeff Loeb and Steve Scrose begins as one of several miniseries comprising the Age of Apocalypse event, which spins out of the story Legion Quest. After Legion, Charles Xavier's son travels back in time to assassinate Magneto, but accidentally kills his father instead. The entire line shifts into a dystopian alternate world where the immortal mutant Apocalypse rules with an iron fist, the authoritarian dictator of America. Apocalypse has exterminated millions of humans to establish a mutant supremacist state, and has eliminated almost all known telepaths to secure power. One of Apocalypse's horsemen in this hellish new reality is the geneticist Mr. Sinister, who secretly conspires against him. We meet Nate Gray as a teenage runaway who escaped from Sinister with the unexpected help of the prelate Cyclops, and found a surrogate family in a rebel theater troupe led by the mutant inventor Forge. Forge treats Nate like a son, but insists he not use his telepathic mutant powers, for fear that Apocalypse will notice him somehow. In the first issue, the troupe is joined by two new members, Teresa Cassidy, aka Sonique, Nate's love interest, and a man named Essex, who claims to have escaped servitude under Apocalypse. 
Essex encourages Nate to explore his telepathic and telekinetic gifts, which draws the attention of one of Apocalypse's other lieutenants, the evil telepath called the Shadow King. Apocalypse dispatches his assassins led by Domino, who massacre much of the troop. Forge realizes Essex is a mole, actually Mr. Sinister, who murders Forge. Nate finds his surrogate father dying and is told to seek out Magneto, leader of the X-Men. Sinister gloats over Nate's distress and informs Nate of his true nature as a genetic experiment, artificially engineered from the DNA of Sinister's foster son Scott Summers and the telepath Jean Grey. Sinister has created Nate in an effort to slay Apocalypse, who's taken his belief in evolution to a genocidal extreme Sinister no longer thinks will benefit the species. Nate accepts that killing Apocalypse is his destiny, but surprises Sinister by first overpowering and killing him. Nate aids in the rebellion in New York, instinctively recognizing his parents among those rising up, and then confronts Apocalypse in the finale X-Men Omega. He frees Magneto from captivity and then battles Apocalypse's son, Holocaust. Using a shard of the Macron crystal to stab his enemy, Nate finds both himself and Holocaust dragged through time and space as the reality warp ends and Earth-616 is restored. They arrive orbiting the planet, and Nate crash lands in Switzerland, sending out a psychic distress call that alarms all the telepaths on Earth. Where the other AOA miniseries ended with issue 4, X-Man continues as an ongoing. Confused and with his memories scrambled, Nate observes a mother with her children and is suddenly met by Madeline Pryor, the clone of Jean Grey who had died years earlier in the 1989 franchise-wide event Inferno, now miraculously restored to life. Madeline is fully amnesiac, though she hides this from Nate. All she can remember is that she does not trust the X-Men or Mr. Sinister, and her enmity for Sinister makes Nate believe he can trust her. Maddie accompanies Nate as he's pursued by agents of the Sugar Man, another survivor of the Age of Apocalypse reality, but is quickly seduced by the immortal sorceress Selene, who senses Maddie's power and takes her on as a new apprentice, separating her from Nate. Nate starts doing odd jobs, lonely, and facing strange fluctuations in his power and health. At his weakest, he's rescued from the Sugar Man's agents by the nefarious Dark Beast, the final AOA refugee, who tempts Nate with the knowledge that Sinister created him with an expiration date. Nate attacks the Dark Beast and departs, refusing to work with him given the atrocities the scientist had committed in Nate's home reality. Under new writer John Estrander, Charles Xavier grows disconcerted by the arrival on Earth of a telepath strong enough to shield himself from detection by Cerebro. When he confronts Nate astrally, Nate's able to pull Xavier's astral form into physical space, something Xavier did not believe was possible. Xavier introduces himself as leader of the X-Men, confusing Nate, who expects the leader of the team to be Magneto. Realizing that Nate is capable of defeating him, Xavier plays dead and lets him leave. Nate next encounters Rogue, who he knew in the Age of Apocalypse as Magneto's wife. Rogue arranges for Nate to meet with Moira McTaggart on Muir Island, who discovers a flaw in his genetic makeup that will cause his powers to burn out his body by the age of 21. Nate is distressed when he realizes Moira is connected to Xavier, but his telepathy reassures him Moira and her team Excalibur have good intentions, leaving him confused. He's confused a lot, are you picking that up? Returning to Paris, where he hopes he can find Madeline, Nate instead rescues a young mutant woman called Threnody from Mr. Sinister's Marauders. Threnody has power over necroplasmic death energy, but must wear inhibitor devices to control it and retain her sanity. She's been Sinister's unwilling servant since she was given to him by Earth-616's Hank McCoy in exchange for intelligence on the legacy virus. Responsible for tracking new mutant manifestations, Threnody has concealed Nate's arrival in this reality from Sinister in the hopes that this powerful mutant can liberate her from her master. Nate decides to bring her with him on his quest to track down Madeline. Meanwhile, over in the pages of Cable, the time traveler Blackwasmith, don't worry about it, determines that Nate is a threat to this reality and must be eliminated. He dispatches Cable to do the honors, and the two Nathans cross paths in the Swiss Alps. Their powers interface strangely when they're in proximity, and Cable's techno-organic virus spirals out of control. 
Nate attacks Cable, but their fight is interrupted by the supervillain Exodus. Check out the Exodus episode from a couple weeks ago for more on that. Nate seals Exodus away, but overloads his powers and finds himself dying. Blackwismith insists Cable let him die, but Cable refuses, giving up some of his own energies to heal Nate's unstable power. As a consequence, Cable loses control of the techno-organic virus. Nate wakes up tended by Threnody, who's taken shelter with him in a ski lodge, and he reads her mind to better understand her powers, and her link to Mr. Sinister. From here, X-Men is taken over by writer Terry Cavanaugh, who will write the book from issue 16 to issue 62. This is where Onslaught happens, which you mostly don't need to worry about, but unfortunately, it matters for X-Men. Holocaust is working for Onslaught now, so he attacks Nate and Threnody as they're relaxing at the beach. Unwilling to seek out Cable or the X-Men for help, Nate goes to the Avengers at Threnody's suggestion. It turns out Onslaught is Charles Xavier gone crazy, who has kidnapped the reality-warping child Franklin Richards. Mr. Sinister tries to convince Nate to work with him, but Nate refuses. He's then captured by Onslaught, who reveals that when Nate dragged Xavier's astral form into physical reality, he helped create Onslaught's body. Onslaught reads Nate's mind to see what the boy's home reality was like, eager to create a world of his own where mutants rule. But he's horrified to see the cruelty of the Age of Apocalypse. Deciding mutants must also be purged, Onslaught decides to destroy all sentient life on Earth. He's finally stopped by the sacrifice of the Avengers and the Fantastic Four, who are apparently killed by joining with him, and honestly, don't worry about it, this part doesn't matter. Google Heroes Reborn if you want. The old one, not the one from 2021. While Nate was dealing with Onslaught, Threnody had been recaptured by the Marauders, but then wound up with the Hulk villain, the Abomination, with whom Threnody apparently has a violent history. Nate rescues her, and their friendship begins developing into a romance. He uses his telepathic powers to run confidence games in Central Park and make them money, until he's suddenly dragged back to the Age of Apocalypse reality by the Sugar Man. He's reunited with Forge and Magneto, only from earlier in the AOA timeline before Nate's birth. While Nate wants to stay and make the AOA better, Forge tricks him into returning to Earth-616 in the hopes that he will live a better life there. Nate becomes best friends with Peter Parker, but this is not a Spider-Man podcast. Meanwhile, Threnody has been secretly draining terminally ill and dying people, pushing them over the edge into death with her powers to feed her growing addiction to necroplasmic energy. Nate confronts her about it and wants to help her, but declares she must first accept she has a problem. Before they can work that out, Threnody is approached by Madeline Pryor, now the Black Rook of the Hellfire Club, whose memories have been restored, leaving her incandescent with rage. Maddie demands to know where Nate is, but Threnody won't help her, and attacks her when Maddie taps her on the shoulder. Threnody realizes that Madeline isn't really alive. Threnody's power tells her Maddie's still dead, even if she's walking around. She taunts Maddie with this knowledge, which compels Maddie to murder her. Not Maddie's best moment. Nate, unaware of what's transpired, believes Threnody has abandoned him. It's worth noting here, because I forgot to mention it in the rest of this episode, that in the confrontation between Threnody and Madeline, it's implied that Madeline is programmed to be sexually attracted to men of the Summer's line. This is presumably meant to explain Maddie's very weird, incestuous dynamic with Nate, which I appreciate, I guess, but I don't like it. I think it takes away Maddie's agency even more if her attraction to Havoc wasn't of her own free will. Let's just assume Threnody is extrapolating from sinister programming Maddie to fall in love with Scott, which we know to be true. Anyway, Maddie tracks Nate back to the Swiss Alps, where they make out. I know. God. They're interrupted by the arrival of Jean Grey, who sensed Madeline's awakening on the astral plane, and Nate is thrust into the middle of a confrontation between the two identical women. He infuriates Maddie by not taking her side, and Jean realizes that as Maddie grows stronger, Nate grows weaker, because their powers are connected. The three of them link telepathically and realize what brought Maddie back from the dead in the first place. Nate, who was subconsciously looking for his mother. He reanimated Madeline's psychic ghost as a telepathic entity, and he now attempts to unmake her. To his surprise, Maddie now has her own independent existence, and she's furious that he's tried to kill her. 
Nate's telekinesis abruptly stops working, which Moira McTaggart theorizes is his subconscious suppressing his powers. He's approached by Havoc and Fatal, members of the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, who promise they can help him stabilize his power. Nate thinks this Brotherhood might have the right idea about mutant rights, but when he discovers they're led by the Dark Beast, he destroys their headquarters, potentially at the cost of his own life due to toxic gas. He manages to bring his telekinesis back at full strength to survive, and is nursed back to health by three hippie girls who witness his confidence games in Central Park. During Operation Zero Tolerance, Nate rescues Jean Grey's nephew and niece Galen and Joey, his alternate reality cousins, from the Prime Sentinels. He then meets a mentally unstable psychic, Jack Cole, whose powers were somehow unlocked by Nate's miracles. When a crowd of civilians witnesses Nate stop Jack, they declare him a hero. Soon other miracles make him a more and more popular figure, but this all turns out to be a plot by the Purple Man, who you might remember from the Netflix Jessica Jones show. Do not worry about it. Embarrassed that he bought into his own hype, Nate tries to erase his existence from the memories of everyone in New York. This sends out a psychic distress call that summons Spider-Man, who tries to talk some sense into his friend. The two fight, and it damages their friendship. At one point, Nate temporarily creates a psychic ghost of Gwen Stacy from the Age of Apocalypse. I don't know, guys. This book is weird. Anyway, Madeline also heard the psychic distress call, so she tracks down Nate and insists he needs her help. She helps him defend himself against the PsyOps, a group tracking him, but attempts to prevent him from searching for Threnody using his telepathy. He starts looking for Threnody anyway, but he's halted by the Psy War, a battle between Betsy Braddock and the Shadow King that temporarily disables telepathy worldwide. Madeline's psychic form shatters, and while she manages to reconstitute herself after a couple weeks, Nate is still bereft of his telepathy. They become local superheroes in Ireland for a bit, and then meet a strange man called Ness, short for The Witness, who you don't need to worry about. He's precognitive and looks like Nate, but with his hair colors reversed. The group is attacked by techno-gnomes. Don't worry about that either. Blackwithsmith sent them, and they're separated from Ness. Maddie and Nate track down Holocaust, who's been killing people in the area, and by working together, they manage to defeat and apparently kill him. Blackwithsmith has been testing Nate with the techno-gnomes because a big conflict is coming. Strife has returned from the dead, somehow. You know, like he does. And he and the Dark Riders attack. Madeline pretends to join Strife, but instead absorbs his energy and gives it to Nate. Strife nearly kills her in retaliation. Ness suddenly arrives and advises Nate on how to defeat Strife. He then returns to Ireland with Maddie and Nate. Nate then has a one-off adventure with Emma Frost in Generation X and gets some leads from her on the Dark Beast's activities. Back in Ireland, Maddie, Nate, and Ness are attacked by an army of the PsyOps. Do not worry about the PsyOps. Maddie allows the PsyOps to kill Ness, but finds herself weakened by the effort the battle has taken on Nate and withers into an old crone. Deciding she needs time to recharge, she departs for places unknown. Visiting with Gene and Scott in an effort to get to know his parents, Nate joins forces with them when a piece of the Age of Apocalypse reality crashes into Earth-616. The Guardians of the Macron Crystal force Nate to undergo a test to see if he's the one causing problems with reality, but he passes. Scott, proud of him, gives him a present, Scott's old X-Factor uniform, which Nate begins wearing as a superhero costume. He then helps the X-Men battle the Manites, do not worry about the Manites, and uncover that Wolverine has been replaced by a Skrull, do not worry about this, either. After a weird adventure where he's tormented by the Spider-Man villain Mysterio, Nate's telepathy returns, but he falls into a week-long coma. Meanwhile, Threnody, who got better almost immediately after dying, but has come back wrong, has been roaming the streets of New York with a zombie army at her heels, apparently pregnant with Nate's child. This book is crazy. Nate's tended by Threnody and her zombie army, and by the time he wakes up, she's no longer pregnant. Threnody explains that Madeline killed her, but her necroplasmic powers reanimated her. She's addicted to the necroplasm, and the zombies rising around her are addicted to her own aura. Nate tries to help her kick the habit, but Threnody decides she cannot risk Nate any further, and lies to him that she was only drawn to him as a source of energy. She runs away, and we see that she has given birth to a monstrous child of some kind, unseen by the reader. 
After meeting with the Fantastic Four, Nate is targeted by Apocalypse, who believes Nate is the mutant messiah he's been seeking. Nate is captured by Apocalypse's horsemen in the lead-up to the franchise-wide event, The Twelve, in which Apocalypse attempts to use the powers of the Twelve Gathered Mutants to take Nate's body as his own and become immortal and indestructible. Apocalypse's plan is foiled by Scott, who pushes Nate out of the way and is possessed in his place. That vessel isn't suitable at all, but Apocalypse manages to escape in Cyclops' body. The X-Men believe Scott is dead, and Jean demands that Nate live up to his legacy as the hero X-Man. Under new writers Warren Ellis and Stephen Grant as part of the abrupt Counter-X relaunch, Nate instead falls back under the spell of Madeline, who influences him more and more. When his powers are clearly out of his control, Madeline reveals that she has been controlling him for some time. She takes him to another world, and it turns out this Madeline is the Red Queen, an evil Jean Grey who was exiled from her native reality for crimes against the universe. She traveled to Earth 998, ruled by the gentle Queen Madeline. After murdering and replacing the Queen, she's been searching the multiverse for the ultimate weapons, Nate Greys. The Red Queen has been using them up one by one until finding the perfect Nate, our Nate. Claiming that she replaced the ghost of Madeline months earlier on Earth 616, the Red Queen now controls Nate entirely and forces him to murder a prisoner. She states her intent to use him to commit large-scale genocide across the continent of Asia. Nate is rescued by the Nate Grey of Earth-998, the first to be abused by the Red Queen, who has since become a shaman, a figure of devotion and leadership to the rebels. Nate of Earth-998 sacrifices himself to swap bodies with our Nate and send him back to Earth-616. This has left Nate with a genetic brand tattoo, an X on his titty, that finally puts his powers under control and means he won't inevitably die when they burn him out. After returning to Earth-998 to kill the Red Queen, Nate decides to become a shaman like the other Nate, protecting the tribe of mutant kind from the dangers of the multiverse. After a few adventures you don't need to worry about, Nate encounters the alien called the Harvester, whose species seeded Earth with parasites a billion years ago, which evolved into the mitochondria in every living thing on the planet. The aliens now intend to harvest the planet, killing everyone on it. Nate offers himself and his limitless energy instead, but as he's from an alternate reality, his energy is anathema to the Harvester. Nate decides to sacrifice himself, dispersing his energies into every living being on Earth and making them all disgusting to the Harvester's species, ending the threat to the planet. Thus ends X-Man with 2001's issue 75. Eight years later, in the 2009 company-wide event Dark Reign, Nate Grey returns in Paul Cornell and Leonard Kirk's Dark X-Men, where Norman Osborn's evil team of X-Men, don't worry about it right now, captures a reconstituted Nate. Nate possesses Norman, and the two fight for control over Norman's body. Mystique and the other Dark X-Men decide to free Norman from Nate's control, but accidentally awaken the Green Goblin personality, who tortures Nate with a device called the Omega Machine and uses his mutant power as a source of energy. The following year, as Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning take over writing duties on New Mutants, we learn that after the fall of Osborn's dark reign, Nate was kept in the Omega Machine by the Sugar Man, who's been using him to open interdimensional portals. Danny Moonstar and the New Mutants are able to rescue him, but his time in the machine has almost completely burned out his powers, leaving him with only very weak telekinesis. He travels with Danny and her team to the mutant haven Utopia, where Cyclops invites him to stay and make a new life for himself alongside the decimated mutant race. Hope Summers, Cable's adopted daughter and the so-called mutant messiah, bonds with Nate, and she and Danny help him learn how to fight without mutant powers. He ends up joining Danny's new mutants team, and the two grow closer. When Utopia is divided by the 2011 schism, Nate sides with his father, believing Scott's harsher outlook on the future of mutant kind is more realistic than Wolverine's plans for another school. After honing his weakened powers further in a battle with the animator, don't worry about it, Nate admits his romantic feelings for Danny, who reciprocates. They end up kissing on a night out in Madripoor, and Nate continues to serve with the New Mutants team through the events of Avengers vs. X-Men, where that title ends. The following year, he makes a cameo appearance in Fearless Defenders, another Danny Moonstar-led book, where it's established that the two are now in a formal romantic relationship. That's the last we see of him for some time, even when Danny appears elsewhere. 
Five years later, Nate abruptly returns to publication in the 2018-2019 franchise-wide event X-Men Disassembled. Kidnapping Magneto, Angel, The Blob, and Omega Red, random, I know, he transforms them into the Horsemen of Salvation, telepathically contacting every mind on Earth to declare himself the Second Coming. He eventually reveals that he's dying, having used a celestial life seed to restore his powers, with the side effect that the genetic brand tattoo is no longer working. Desperate to create paradise on Earth before he dies, to prevent something like the Age of Apocalypse from ever coming to pass, he kills thousands of people worldwide in the pursuit of his utopian ideal. When the X-Men attempt to stop him with the help of Legion, Nate possesses Legion's body, merging with him to become omnipotent and apparently kill the X-Men, erasing them from reality. He's actually shunted them to a pocket dimension, the Age of X-Men, where they live new lives he's designed in which religion and romantic love do not exist. You don't really need to worry about this, and it's very recent, so just go read it if you want. Some of it is really fun. Eventually, they all snap out of it and convince him he's going about things all wrong, and he lets them leave. Nate Gray remains behind in the empty reality he has built, with only a psychic construct of Magneto for company, intending to once and for all create a perfect world. Our heroes return to Earth-616 just in time for the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed the false prophets rise to power and subsequent fall. I thought this would be a fun Christmas episode because the more I think about it, Nate Gray is an attempt at the mutant messiah, which is a theme that has now happened several times over the course of the right. franchise's history. And it's always a Summers, right? Because the idea of like the Summers Gray bloodline will produce this person who is of cosmic importance is the whole thing. They love to give Sinister a hard time for being a eugenicist, but given the evidence that he's specifically working with... Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. He's not wrong about how mutant powers work, which undercuts the idea that, like, oh, he's a eugenicist and therefore yada yada, because in the Marvel Universe, unfortunately, eugenics works to a certain extent. The issue is where eugenics becomes racism, which in the real world it is intrinsically connected to. literally step one. Yeah, step one in the real world is racism. In this case, it's like, well, you can actually crossbreed X genes to produce, like, power offshoot. Like, this is something, unfortunately, that you can do, like, a Punnett square, like you're breeding new colors of flowers. So Sinister has some legitimacy to his scientific theories, which is, yes, unfortunate given the other scientific theories associated with Mr. Sinister. This is the problem with mixing real-world science words with made-up bullshit. Right, exactly. But the thing that I think is most interesting about Hope, who is the ultimate mutant messiah, right. is that she is not biologically related to them. It's like the end of The Last Jedi before the someone's rise of Skywalker fucked that up. I know, someone's going to do it and it's going to ruin the whole thing. Someone's going to do it and they'll be wrong to do it. I understand the impulse. I get it. It's my least favorite thing in fiction. Well, it's the rise of Skywalker, which completely ruined, like, not to get into Star Wars discourse, but the idea that the hero of the galaxy could be anyone and not necessarily someone from one of two families is a cool idea. And to then immediately backtrack on it was lame. It just was. It's dumb. I have a big... So my family comes from adoption. Like my dad and my aunt were both adopted by my grandparents. Gotcha. I am the biological son of both of my parents. But I because I learned from an early age that, hey, family sometimes is just what it is. Right. And there's nothing there's nothing inherently special. Like those are your about. grandparents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like so I have like a distaste anytime it's like, well, actually this bloodline is really what and I'm like, oh come on. Like right. you don't have to if if it's 
like I don't get I don't get mad about the Summers family because it's like I get thematically they're a family. Let's get that all together. It's fine. Where I get mad is when they're like, actually, this person that you thought was your adopted parent is really your secret real Yeah, parent. I hate that too. It's weird. And that's the stuff that's going to happen with Hope. And I don't want well, it to happen. And nope. Okay. You, they, stop speaking it. it. Yeah, stop speaking it into being. Why would you do that? Just relax. I don't. Because I like to hurt myself. Yeah, it's, it's like, you know, we don't need to manifest that. Good vibes. This is a good vibes podcast. I do think, and Mike Carey couldn't really remember if this was, he was like, I don't think so, but it was something bandied about at one point that she was going to be Jean reincarnated. I mean, that was how it seemed to me in Messiah and there are hints several times at it. It doesn't make a lot of sense that that isn't how it turns out, but it's fine. Like, her connection to the yeah. Phoenix doesn't particularly make sense, but it's fine. We're just going to move on. I do like that she's not related to him, is my point. But anyway, to go back, that does undercut the eugenics of it all, much like the Skywalker problem that we were talking about. So to go back, the mutant messiah from the Summer's Grey line is something that is repeated as a motif again and again. Claremont's is Rachel. Sure. She is not, in his envisioning, actually Scott's biological child. He thought of her as born parthenogenically from the Phoenix, but right. she is a messiah child of Scott and Jean who is vital to the future of the mutant race. That's Claremont's sort of version of that. Then the version of the 90s, the early 90s, the Niciesa, Labdell, and Liefeld, and David, and all of that period, is Cable. Yeah. As retconned into Nathan Christopher Summers. Yeah. Nate Gray is the late 90s version of it. Because he's better Cable. Because he's Cable he without Cable's limitations, which means he is the ultimate mutant that Sinister sought to create. Their first big fight, it's Cable and X-Man, who, by the way, we're going to get to the, or we should get to this at some point. He gets called X-Man twice in this entire series. And one of the times is Gene going, you call yourself X-Man? Well, earn it. It's like, he doesn't, though. Yeah, no. That was once <laughs> and it was a different writer. It's fine. It's a whole thing. It was an onslaught tie and they were just trying to get the brand recognition. It's a bad name for, it's a funny joke. It's a bad name for It's a, a very bad code name. name for the character to have because you have to say X-Man, Nate Gray, the guy, not one of the X-Men. Right. It's not useful. Anyway, X-Man and Cable and Exodus all get into this big Dragon Ball Z-ass fight. And it's like, look at how powerful Nate is. And also, he's so powerful that he may blow himself and all of the Earth up with his sheer might because he's the greatest and the best of every mutant messiah. Well, early on, Moira discovers that he is so powerful that he's going to die by the age of 21 because his power will burn out his body. And then that gets... Oh, yeah. He's also allegedly a teen. Yeah, I think he's an adult, but he's supposed to be like 18, 19. Like, he's only supposed to have like a couple years he's to 16. live. He's 16. I read the letters columns. He's 16. Is he in the letter column? He's 16? Letter column. Editorial was like, oh, yeah, he's 16. I... What are you guys not getting? I... What about this kid? I... Oh, no, the 16-year-old did it. Oh. I... I hate this book so Ew. much. God. He doesn't act like a teenager. Or look like one. Besides being whiny, but he's a comics character in the 90s. They're all whiny. I'm sorry, I don't buy that. He's like, he reads no, his like either. 20. One of, my notes, one of my notes specifically says, he's not really a teen, right? Yeah, no. Because leaving aside the Maddie of it all, Threnody yeah. is not 16 either. Like the, these are- Threnody is a woman. Yeah, like these are- Threnody's great though. We've not talked about Threnody. I love Threnody. I've been holding back because I do not want this to become a Threnody podcast, which it very easily could become because she deserves her own episode. But 
I love that character. It is a crazy pull. She is a character who Nisiesa introduces in the Strife Strike Files, actually, who then oh, plays yeah. a small role in an Uncanny X-Men arc where Beast essentially sells her to Sinister in exchange for intelligence on the legacy virus. It's the first really dark turn for Hank McCoy. It's a good issue, too. It's a great issue. That's why Fabian said on my show, yeah. if what's happened to Beast is my fault, I regret it completely. I love Fabes so much. But so Threnody then is in Sinister's care. She has the power to absorb the energy of death, necroplasmic energy, they call it. People who are dying are recently dead. Like it calls out to her. She is like a vampire. She needs it to live. She also can project it outward in bursts of gigantic concussive force. She cannot control that because she's crazy because she's constantly being beset by ghosts, basically. Listen, she's got a good reason for not being like, super right. control. It's actually not really like, when I say crazy, I'm usually saying it's a bad story. It's not. Like, you'd also be pretty crazy if this was your life. They at least treat her with a semblance of sympathy. Yeah, it's treated as like, this girl is tormented by her power and it's horrible. Like, that's the story, right? So what Sinister is able to do, and that's part of why Beast is like, well, it's okay to leave her with him, I guess, is that Sinister can put these dampeners on her skull. Like, they're these cool little cyborg like they're 90s cyborg tech it's like seven of nine from voyager kind of pieces that go on her face and they hold the energy in kind of like havoc's little hat used to back in the day all the death energy is held right here between your temples where this book picks up with the character and fabian didn't even know until a couple years ago apparently that threnody had like ever appeared again and was delighted to hear that she had been nate gray's love interest for years she pops up here because she wants to escape from Sinister. She knows that Nate is powerful enough to help her do it. And they fall in love while they're sort of on the run, etc. And here she has become sane or at least saner because the ghost feedback nightmare is over because her powers have been dampened which connects the two of them, kind of. They both have this power inside them that would destroy them if it was at its full potential mm -hmm. and are both holding back all the time. But she's like Cable. She has an external thing, the way that he has the T.O. virus, holding the power back. Yeah, where, where Nate has to just use all of his self-control. Yeah, and just be like, don't do it or you'll explode, you know. I like their relationship. I like that they... They feed off each other pretty well. She makes a great foil for him. Unfortunately for Threnody, um, Madeline Pryor doesn't like when Threnody's like, oh, you're not really alive. Yeah, so Nate gets shunted back into the Age of Apocalypse for a second in an annual. Don't worry about it. Is that that annual with the good Alan Davis? Yeah, it's beautiful. While he's, like, missing, basically, Madeline, after her seduction by Celine, has become the Black Rook of the Hellfire Club, and Celine and Tessa became concerned because Madeline and Shaw have started fucking. Yeah. And Madeline is, again, still amnesiac, so... She doesn't really know who she is, et cetera, et cetera. She just knows she doesn't trust the X-Men and Mr. Sinister's a bad guy, bad news. What happens is Tessa starts rooting around in her head and that turns out to be a big mistake, huge, because she unlocks all of Madeline's memories at once, which Madeline finds extremely traumatic, much as Jean does in like the Bendis stuff. 
Yeah, well, Madeline had a bad time there at the end. Madeline had a real bad time there at the end. So suddenly, all of Inferno comes roaring back, everything with Scott, all of it. She's fucking furious. She's also furious at Tessa for doing this to her, for, like, burdening her with this knowledge. She almost kills Tessa, and then it's like, you know what? No, I'll let you live, but I'm really fucking pissed, just FYI. She leaves the Hellfire Club and goes to find Nate. She can't find him, but she does find Threnody, And Threnody recognizes Maddie because Nate has told her about Maddie, but she doesn't want to tell Maddie where Nate is or whatever. Madeline taps her on the shoulder like, hey, listen, I really, and Threnody doesn't like that. She doesn't like being touched. Fair enough. Which is fair enough, but she then makes a mistake, which is she grabs Madeline by the wrist and starts electrocuting her with like the necroplasm energy Mm. and explains to her that she's still dead, actually. You know, first of all, don't touch people without asking. But also, you're walking around. You think you're... You think you're people. You think you're people. You think you're people, Madeline. The number one thing you don't want to say to Madeline Pryor is that she's not a real person, right? She hates that. She's so sensitive she's about really that. She's really sensitive about that one specific thing. So saying you're not real and you're still dead really, really pisses her off. And she's already in a really bad mood because she just got all of these memories back like the previous day. So... She kills Threnody right there, just fucking wipes her out and leaves her by the gravesite. Okay, but what's beautiful is that immediately after that, she does find Nate Gray. They start making out, getting hot and heavy, and they get cock-blocked by Jean. Yes. This is a crazy book, guys. Like, this is fully insane. The Madeline and Nate of it all is crazy. I... I I really do like even that scene with Madeline and Threnody, and I really love the confrontation between Madeline and Jean after Jean Cockblocks. Like twenty five is a pretty good issue, actually. The characterization of Madeline is so good, except for the fact that her relationship with Nate has this sexual component to it, which is insane. It's insane. It's wild. It's there's so many good lines. Like in that in that part. Jean is worried. She hasn't told Scott that she knows that Madeline's back. Right, because Jean has sensed Madeline through the astral plane because they're astral twins, because they're literal twins. And like, yeah, don't worry about it. She's like real nervous that Madeline's going to try and get her husband back. And Maddie just looks, she says, no fear, girlfriend. Been there, done that, and his little brother too. So good. So good. It's fantastic. She's like, your wedding? The one right after my wake? Yeah, heard about it. Don't care. It's (laughs) <laughs> fantastic Nate finally figures out that it's his mom which is yes, very funny because he's looking at these two identical women he's like wait you're also my mom so that screws up their like romance for a minute for a minute, a for a minute. well this is the it. thing it's like he has like a Jon Snow moment with Daenerys right of like Daenerys being like who cares and him being like I care in Jon Snow's case, I think that was kind of stupid. I mean, like, you know, leaving aside the fascist decline of Daenerys Targaryen and all that stuff, I'm just saying she's what? You're like half aunt? By medieval terms or whatever the equivalent to it's Game like of Thrones It's barely is. anything. To, I mean, it's frankly, being a nobleman in a world like that, you would be marrying someone who's at least a second cousin pretty much always. Yeah. So that didn't really track for me. Anyway, doesn't matter. Like with many things, I feel like it will make more sense in the book someday. You know, God bless. Love George. Great guy. Good for him. That makes it sound like we're like besties. I've just met him a couple. I've, I've just I met him through I assume that work. everyone in the publishing world is best friends, including you and famous author George R.R. R. Martin. 
X-Men writer George R.R. R. Martin, excuse me. I've met him a couple times and he's just like a really, really nice guy. Anyway, point is, this is crazy still. He puts a pause on like them being romantic, except she kind of like won't take no for answer, which is, you know, I mean, she doesn't, it's not like, it starts to become predatory at a certain point. It's not like that at first. And then it turns into something where, especially when she has her memories back, it's really unsavory. Right. At the same time, though, and I, I, I don't want to play Madeline Pryor's defense attorney because I know that's your position. He is also threatening to unwrite her from all reality, which is her biggest fear in the world. Yeah, he threatens to unmake her when he realizes, like, I created you because I was looking for my mom. I should unmake you because this is wrong. And she's like, uh, don't I get an opinion on that? And then it turns out he tries to unmake her and he can't. Because once Tessa unlocked Madeline's mind, now she has her own agency and he can't discorporate her, even if he wanted to. To the point that Jean advocates for Madeline as her own person. Jean very notably argues that Madeline is real and that they should be respecting her as a real person and that Scott actually should have a conversation with her. So that is, this is to me, like, this is what I'm saying. Famously, at the end of X-Men, Warren Ellis retcons that this character, this Madeline from X-Men, was never Madeline at all. It's a little inconsistent. Initially, the evil gene from an alternate reality says, I replaced your Madeline. Right. And then the following issue, she says, you never had a real Madeline. This character is called the Red Queen. We'll call her the Red Queen. Matt Fraction has said she is the quote-unquote Madeline of his sisterhood arc, which is a huge cool. relief Bye. to me. Great. I don't buy it, but sure. I buy it, actually, but it's dumb. No, hold on. Nothing about sisterhood is like, oh, and by the way, asterisk, you want to know more about this? Go read X-Men 70. Right. No, it never does it. It never says it. It just calls her the Red Queen. And if you don't, you know, but so whatever. It's just like, all right, Matt, put it on the page. But love fraction, but mm. I mean, I, I I hate that story, and I don't care if he knows. Oh, that. I hate th- I hate that story too. But I, I also <laughs> am staring at my collection of Hawkeye for the big old essay I'm trying to He's finish. A legendary writer for a reason. I think that story is absolute trash. That story's trash garbage. Yeah. No, we we rank stories on our podcast on my podcast. It's near the very yeah because it's one of the very worst. Anyway, here's my grand unified theory of the Red Queen. And I pulled up, actually, the Marvel Universe Appendix, which is one of my favorite, like, for 20 fucking years now. Just an incredible website. It's marvelunapp.com. Incredible website, just, like, fan run. It was characters that didn't matter enough to get entries in the official handbooks. Now there are Marvel wikis and things, but this was before that. It's very meticulous. And they, I remember years ago, tried to figure out the Red Queen. So I went back and reread their theory of it. Mine is slightly different. What is yours? I am fascinated. Well, here's the problem. It would be very easy to just go with it and be like, all right, Warren Ellis' story is right. This was never Madeline. And then we can erase all the incest stuff, right? Which is like, great. Love that for everybody. Which I think is why they did it. I think someone, an editorial, was finally just like, what is this book? What's going on here? This is not, like, this is crazy. Right. Because it is that abrupt shift at 52. And then they go out of their way to retcon that she was never actually, except she was actually Jean. 
which means that it's like definitely for reals incest. Yeah, still, you still did incest, just you added a few more steps. But now she's evil and we can kill her. Like, you know, it's that sort of the, I mean, anyway, point is, here's the problem with that is I don't want to get rid of 25 and I don't like the stuff, the confrontation between Jean and Madeline, I think is important for both characters. Mm-hmm. The Madeline stuff in Cable is really great and I don't want to lose that. And I like the Madeline and Celine stuff, actually. So I want to find a way to keep those stories in continuity. And so here's how I think it works. The Red Queen says that Nate could never have created Madeline, could not have created life. The Red Queen reached out from her reality and helped him create this person. I think that's true. What's really fascinating about this story is that the way I see it, it is the exact story that happened to my favorite television character a few years later, Cordelia Chase on Angel. And I'm just going to spoil it because here's the thing. Angel is one of my favorite shows ever. Season four of Angel, this is the huge fucking problem with the show. The season is only watchable if you are spoiled for this plot point, which is that the entire time. So Cordelia has ascended to heaven and become a higher being. She then breaks the rules and is cast out of heaven. She arrives back on earth without her memories and is seduced while amnesiac by, I mean, like not, you know, in a super active way, but there's a blossoming something between her and Angel's son who she helped raise as his like adoptive mother when he was a baby before he got Cable or Ilyana aged up, right? So it's, yeah, it's dark. What happens that takes it fully into crazy town is that then they do a spell that brings all of Cordelia's memories back and then she actively seduces Connor, Angel's son, and they fuck and Angel sees it and the world starts ending and it's this whole thing and it turns out that she's done it to impregnate herself with the Antichrist and it's not the Antichrist because it's not Christian because it's Angel Buffy but like basically then Cordelia starts murdering people like she's the mole the whole season she's the bad guy in the team 12 episodes of the season you find out that she's the bad guy 18 episodes into the season you find out that since the moment she got her memories back, the higher being that is amoral and like this this villain is like one of those so good it's evil kind of villains, like order over chaos, right? Sure. This being, which is called Jasmine and ends up played by Gina Torres. Okay. And the Jasmine episodes are great, but you have to suffer through the prolonged months-long character assassination of Cordelia Chase first. And Charisma Carpenter was... I mean, she's talked at length about how she was treated on that set. But one of the things that's always been known is that they didn't tell her the twist because uh, Josephine's an asshole. So she would keep going to him like, it doesn't make sense that my character would do this. And he was like, just read the lines. So the performance is off. The story doesn't really make sense. It's bad. But the reveal is that this higher being, this creature, this like Lovecraftian thing, tucked itself away inside her body when they kicked her out of heaven and that since her memories were reactivated, she has been puppeted the entire time by this creature. So it was Jasmine who seduced Connor to create a body for herself and be born onto Earth. Sure, okay. And all of the crimes were Jasmine's and yada, yada, yada. That's the same, it's the same thing that happens here. Same thing, same hat. And that is my interpretation of how the Red Queen plot works is I think that yes, Much like Jasmine sends Cordelia down to Earth, in this case, 
the Red Queen creates or helps Nate create this reconstituted Madeline. But I believe that it is created in part from the real Madeline. I think Madeline's ghost, astral essence, whatever you want to call it, her soul is in there because she has Madeline's memories, which the Jean Grey of Earth 9795 or whatever would not Doesn't. have. Yeah. 9575. I was like, I, I do know what it is. She would not have that. Although the original plan for the Red Queen, by the way, the original plan, and this is something I learned from Marvel Universe Appendix, what Stephen Grant wanted to do, she was going to be the Jean Grey of Earth-616 who became Dark Phoenix and died on the moon, and the Jean who came back in X-Factor was going to be from an alternate Earth. So I I liked that idea. Editorial said absolutely not. As a what-if. No, yeah, no. They were <laughs> they were right. Love it as a what-if. Like, here's the thing. Here's the thing. And we'll, we'll get it. We'll get into this with, like, the later Nate Gray stuff. But if you're going to take a swing, take, take a, a swing. Take a swing. He took a big swing, and they said no, and I'll give him that. No, I like that. So what I think is that the Red Queen, like Jasmine, was tucked away inside the Maddie that Nate created. Right, like a turducken. Right, and that when Tessa awoke her memories, the Red Queen woke up and started to control things. Now, I don't think she's 100% in control. Because Madeline still behaves like herself for a while. There's like a power struggle. I think Madeline slowly transforms into the Red Queen over the course of like 25 to 52, then leaves, Mm -hmm. chooses not to save Ness because she's actually the Red Queen now, abandons Nate, and then comes back as the Red Queen. I think that's. Do you explain Ness in the character file? Because it's not. Okay, good. That's fine. There's a guy named Ness. He looks like reverse Nate Gray. He's one of the hell bent, but we don't know what that means. And uh, don't worry about it. He, he like, truly, Terry I don't, buddy, it will never doing? come up again. And it doesn't matter. I want to, I, I say I want to write a nest story, but also I have no idea what that would even look like. So I think that the aggressive predatory stuff that Maddie points at right. Nate after she gets her memories back is the Red Queen, and that's how that retcon can absolve Madeline of that without getting rid of the good Madeline stuff you have in the early run of X-Men. And also, notably, after X-Men 52 is when the Cable story happens during the 12, and the astral mm-hmm. ghost of Maddie talks to Scott and Cable, and they're like, Madeline, help us. And she's like, I can't. I'm just a ghost. Meaning that the Madeline that's now on Earth is not her yeah, she was actively not a ghost until right about right so that's right what i'm saying this. is that's i think 52 is where the red queen finally takes full control of the body and basically kills madeline so we're talking a lot about the counter x era yeah i just needed to get that out of the way and that means that it is that madeline is responsible for killing threnity threnity gets better by the way it's fine well, I mean, does she i don't think she gets better but here's the thing about threnity actually because this is a- okay wait yeah yeah yeah, yeah. let's do let's do yeah, this one let's do this, let's do this one. one this is the x-man story i actually really like Threnody, because of her power over death, uh, wakes up like almost immediately after being murdered. We don't see that for a couple issues, but she gets up, but like she ain't right. It's like something it's like the necroplasmic energy like reanimates her and she's real crazy again. She came back wrong. She came back wrong. It's like it it has not to again go to a place of a song of ice and fire, but it has a little bit of a Lady Stoneheart vibe to it of like, "Mm, this is not great. And her presence begins reanimating corpses into an army of zombies that begins to follow and worship her. Yeah, she does get a good old zombie army. Also, she's pregnant. That's the one. Okay, good. Yeah, 
Uh, not by the end of the arc. By the end of the arc, she's specifically no not. longer pregnant. Correct. But and she's here's yeah. Mm, she's super pregnant for a bit there, though. And we we know what she was doing nine months prior. Right. No, to, that's that's Nate's child. There's no other person whose child that could be. That's a summer. That's a summer. Right there. That is a summer's child. Connor, do you know the fate of that child? Yes, that it got killed off in Deadpool and the Mercs for Money. A uh, Deadpool assassin. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't much. give a shit because it's Deadpool. No offense. No offense. Listen. Listen, I listen. love Jerry Duggan. I cannot abide Deadpool. It's just, I love Fabian. I cannot abide Deadpool. It just doesn't work for me. I have read the Threnody story because it has Threnody in it. Oh, that, well, in that, Colin Bunn has even said, oh, that's that's the worst Deadpool story I ever did. It's bad. It's actively just not a good story. And it's disrespectful to her in a way that annoyed me because that character had already been. It's disrespectful to Rick Remender. And if I'm defending <laughs> Rick Remender's honor right now. <laughs> Because Deadpool kills a kid. Yeah. Deadpool, like, shoots a baby. And I don't love that. So basically, eventually, Nate encounters Threnody again. And now she's kind of not as crazy anymore, but still a little off. The zombies are following her everywhere. Not crazy about that now at this point, now that she's more in her right mind. She's not pregnant when she turns up in this. Nate is like, Threnody, like, we should be, like, we can still be together. Like, I can help you. And she lies to him and is like i never loved you i just she's trying to spare him because she knows that whatever's going on with her it's really fucking bad and she's like i never loved you i was drawn to your energy and i've had my fill or whatever you know then though we see that she has given birth to a child yeah she has his and that's the cliffhanger the child makes like a creepy sound like it's like the baby the baby like reaches up to her and goes like so like it's it's something's up with the kid. Oh, it, it's an evil it's baby. It's an evil baby, Listen. for sure. In the original story. I'm not, I'm saying, it's not Cullen Bunn's fault that the baby is evil. It is Cullen Bunn's fault that he perpetually felt like fixing old weird 90s continuity that like him, you and me care about. Well, I would love to do something with Threnody and her baby, but I just, it, you know, it turns, so yeah, this is not a Threnody podcast, but the baby dies in it's Deadpool. It's not, we had to, we had to talk about that because right afterwards we get the Counter X Counter X, era. which is when the whole line kind of relaunched it didn't renumber or anything, but they had new creative teams and it was all coordinated by Warren Ellis. Yeah, so they did. This is how you know it was a bad marketing campaign. Counter X is a sub rebranding of the revolution. Right, because Claremont coming back became way bigger news than this Counter X thing. So it's like revolution also Counter X. Yeah, Counter X is like X-Men, X-Force, Gen X. Warren Ellis is listed as the mastermind in the credits, which is way worse than Head of X. Yeah, not I would not want to be credited as mastermind. Go to so many of us.com. Warren Ellis, not great. We don't need We don't need to get into that right now. Not great. Regardless, he has some ideas, and I generally think that his ideas for a lot of these do get the books to like the year two thousand. Like it kicks them from nineteen ninety six, where I think all three of these books were sitting. I think that Gen X becomes a great book right before it gets canceled. I like Gen X the best out of these. I think the Counter X Gen X is really, really good, honestly. X-Force suffers, but X-Force me, was suffering But X-Force already while. was bad by that point, so... 
X-Man one gets a killer redesign. The redesign's awesome. The Ariel Olivetti. He stops wearing a shirt at this moment, by the way. Because he gets a titty tattoo from the alternate universe. It's fantastic. He does kind of a body swap with the guy, but it's him, so it's okay. Yeah, he meets his alternate self and ends up absorbing the alternate self's titty tattoo that holds back his power. So that now, like Threnody's head thingies or like Cable's T.O. virus, Nate has something that he can control. Yeah. It's not like the T.O. virus that's out of his control, but he now is not going to burn himself out. He can use exactly as much power as he wants to use. It's the apotheosis of the character, basically. And what, what they do with it is they do, he positions himself as, quote, the shaman of the mutant tribe, which is an interesting take in how they use it because he positions himself as, I'm going to be this wandering guy going around taking care of mutants just as an individual. Right. I think that's an interesting concept, and I wish they did more than have him fight the authority. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't do anything is the problem. Yeah, no, it's it's like 10 issues of doing nothing, and then he sacrifices himself and puts a little bit of him in every person on Earth. Right. Basically, it turns out that long ago, an alien race had like helped seed mitochondria on Earth. You should play Parasite Eve if you want a 90s take on mitochondria that fucking whips Jeez, way harder than this. I have not thought this. about Parasite Eve in a hot I minute. think about Parasite Eve every day. My dad had that game. I was very scared of it. I did not play it. Oh, I played it and I was a child. So sack up, Zach. Yeah, I know. I was, I was a very sickly scared child. I didn't like the demon in the freaking burning off our house. I was like, nope, this oh, is weird. So Don't like it. <laughs> the opera's gone. It's so good. God, Parasite rules. Weird game. I wish they would just do like a full high def remaster, rework, remake of that. Like completely just like ground up. Change nothing. Keep it like the very weird gameplay, but just, you know, make it fresh. That'd be so good. A lot of weird nerds would like that. Yeah, and no one else would buy it, so they'll never do it. Anyway, the question in both Parasite Eve and in this series is like, where do mitochondria come from? Because we're not 100% sure how mitochondria evolved. It's still something scientists are like, have theories on. And there. in the 90s, it was like a hot topic. So this is like, aliens did it. Now they're going to come and devour everyone on Earth. And so X-Man is like, well, what if you took all of my energy instead? Because I am X-Man, the shaman of the mutant people. I am the ultimate mutant. I have like all this raw energy that's like unlimited. And he's like, you're from an alternate reality. So your energy tastes disgusting to us. And so what Nate Gray decides to do in 75, the final issue of X-Men, is he disperses himself into every living thing on Earth so that every single living thing on Earth now has a tiny piece of Nate Gray inside them and therefore now tastes horrible to these aliens. So the aliens are like, well, that's our plan ruined. And they just leave because they're like, we don't want to eat that. It's a weird ending that he just like evaporates into everything and everyone well it's not that weird an ending because he's jesus i mean like that's just right like he sacrifices himself to absolve mankind of an original sin that it wasn't conscious of that will lead to its damnation and listen listen i love me a jesus there's there's a lot of merry christmas everybody peace on earth and mercy mild god and mutants reconciled <laughs> I am legitimately fascinated about stories about religion because, especially in the Western world, Christianity is the number one touch point of so many things. Of all like art and back. literature, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just, like it's it's all there. Yeah, you can't escape it, so it's worth analyzing. I did 13 years of private Christian school as I was growing up, so I've got a lot of that just knowledge yeah. stuck in here. 
And it's like, okay, well, now I can at least play Connect the Dots. Right. So I'm saying, like, it's not weird in that sense because no. it is just the sacrifice of Jesus. However, it's, it's weird, weird because why are we was. doing that? Like, why why yeah. is Nate Gray Jesus now? Like, it's you don't really, apart from Sinister's eugenic project, there's nothing, like, he is the most powerful mutant there's ever been, sure. But there's nothing else that really makes this scan, you know? And nothing will. Ever. For a while. To me... We're going to talk about that. Okay, we'll get to Age of X-Men. Uh, to me, it's aesthetic. It's semiotic. I don't... I, I, yes. I, but I don't think that... I still don't buy this for the character. It doesn't track for me. It just doesn't. But at this point, like, it, it is... The character's been this now longer than he hasn't. So, uh, you know, but it, it's just such an odd turn to me that I don't... Well, I think it's because... I think it's because it's an idea for the character. Which, which you need. the rest of the run isn't. Yeah, no. What is he going to do is the question of this character always. He just exists. He's Poochie. I mean, he literally is like a Poochie-style addition. You need to explain Poochie for the youths. I had to explain Poochie to the youths long ago on this podcast, and now they know who... Harini knows who Poochie is. Harini is the protagonist of the Cerebro Discord. She's a college yep. student who's brilliant, but uh, did not know who Poochie was. So here's what I'm saying is, like, he's Poochie. He is Poochie. The whole run, the 75 issues, is every character pointing at Poochie and going, it's Poochie. And, like, literally, when he's not there, Madeline is, like, shaking down Threddy. Where's Poochie? Like, they all need Poochie all the time. Except, what does Poochie do? Nothing. He can't. Like, he has nothing to do. He's in a rock band. He wears <laughs> Scott's old pants for a little while. Like, he does whatever he feels like doing. It's weird. He bros out with Spider-Man. Like, nothing is happening in this book. Ever. For 75 issues. It's crazy. Like, I get why when Quesada's saying we should trim down the X-Men line. Well, this is, yeah. Focus it. This is the easy cut. Listen, I was an Excalibur fan. And, like, if I'm looking at this line, it's like, okay, yeah, the very easy cuts here. X-Men goes, Excalibur goes, and then Gen X probably has to go. Yeah. Specifically because of what Morrison was doing with the Xavier School. It yeah, would have been weird to have two schools going at the same time. So you got to get rid of it. Yeah. Those are the three that are very obviously books that got to go. Yeah. And with X-Force, they're like, let's turn it into something else. And then they turn it into really something else. It's not X-Force. I still like it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it, it's not. I'm not saying it's bad. The Milligan X-Force by any means. It's just a completely different book. I'm just saying it's been, what, 60 some episodes. and You've still not done Dupe. Just saying. Just saying. I don't like Dupe. I don't. I think that. He is immersion breaking. I find him like Deadpool to be an off-putting fourth wall break that I don't like. I also think visually that like he doesn't fit into the aesthetic language of the X-Men and he's always just like a gag and it's not funny to me. So I am... Oh, the, here's here's the difference. I think it's hilarious almost every time. I don't think it's funny. That's fair. But this is what we were... This is the Howard the Duck thing that we were talking about. It is your, the Howard yeah, the Duck thing! I also find Howard the Duck insufferable. So it, it's... I get it. Yeah. I think you're... And it's not that I'm man, saying that either yeah. Dupe or Howard the Duck, no one should like this. I'm just saying... I don't like this. I'm a man who had a large dupe poster on my wall for some time. Far be it for me to tell you to take it down. I'm just saying. Uh, no, my it it was not far from my wife to be it to tell me to take well, it down. Well, good for her. To be fair, we were moving to a different place. I had less wall space, and I just prioritized. Yeah. To me, ecstatics should be 
in a different earth. I don't think that those characters and the X-Men characters make sense in the same space. And I particularly don't like whenever dupe shows up in like a regular X-Men title. I just don't. Okay. But does anything make sense in the X-Men space? Like it's all mishmash. It is, but that book specifically and the way that it handles their celebrity, I think doesn't track with everything else that's happening in the other mutant books. I think very specific to that book at that time, it tracks with the ideas that Morrison was putting forward. The ideas, I think but it doesn't work execution, as world building. I agree with it's that, the especially same as themes, time has... But I don't think that the, yes. the two universes can be existing at the same time rationally. That's a fair that's a fair take. The hysteria about the mutants at Xavier's school and the death of Jumbo Carnation and all of that stuff doesn't work if the Ecstatics project is also happening at the same time, and they're Would all. Would Jumbo have worked if he got like? What if it wasn't Jumbo? If it was one of the Ecstatics, does that work? No, because like again, the problem is like Jumbo was a niche figure. Jumbo is famous to mutants. Emma has to be told who he is. He's a mutant youth figure. Mm, okay, you got me there. You have me. You actually have me there. He's like a lot of queer fashion designers that I would know in New York City who would not be in Milan. That I wouldn't. Yeah, right. Like, but like that gay people in New York might know because he dresses so and so. He dresses Zelia Banks for this show or whatever. Right. Like those people become really known in their communities, but are not, you know, Yves Saint Laurent. And it's in Mutant Town. I mean, it's literally Lower Manhattan, right? So you're you haven't convinced me, but you are making me. We're like, we're off topic. We are wildly off topic. Yeah, I like the Milligan X Force. I really would prefer if it was like in its own continuity, and I appreciate when they just don't cross the streams there too much. Is sort of my feeling on it. But I will do dupe eventually, and whenever I do do the dupe episode, I'll cover that run sort of generally. So we'll get. So Nate Gray comes back. Nate Gray comes back. Apparently, according to the Marvel handbooks, months later, which, by the way, it's it's several years of publication, but it's in the dark rain. Yeah. When who could imagine Norman Osborn, a known bad person, being uh, in charge of a lot of the military and a big figure in the U.S. government? Who could imagine? Yeah, it was at the time. It seemed like a crazy. Well, I mean, so did President Luther over at D.C. Right? Like it was like that could never happen. Anyway, 2008, we were all dealing with a lot. Yeah. We felt hope for the first time, and then it was the real world hit us. But comics were going in a different direction. Norman Osborn had his own team of X-Men, and then X-Men, Nate Gray, just decided, hey, I'm going to come back now. He pops up, it is eight years later, after the end of X-Men, and he just comes back. It's not super well explained, honestly, but it doesn't matter. He reabsorbed all of his from everybody. Yeah, it's fine. It's like, it's truly a whatever, don't worry about it. Um, And Norman Osborn starts using him basically as like a parasaurus and as a battery, because Norman's working with the Dark Beast, who obviously is very familiar with Nate and who Nate is very familiar with. I do think that the Dark X-Men story is not a good X-Men story. It is a good Norman Osborn. It's a good comic. It's just like barely an X-Men comic. Mystique posing as Jean Grey, who's dead, just to be mean to everyone is very funny. Like just as a troll. She's like, I'm Norman Osborn's like right hand, Jean Grey. I lead the X-Men. That's dark-sided and is a true troll that is very, very funny. It's very funny. But he ends up in what I think is when Zeb Wells leaves the New Mutants, 
Yeah. I do think the book suffers uh, when Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning get it. I love Abnett and Lanning. I don't love them on New Mutants. I'll just say that. Right. It's just not my favorite of their stuff. That's exactly where I'm at with it. I do think it's hilarious that Cyclops' entire mission to the team is, hey, yeah, uh, writers have left a lot of loose ends, and we've got to go back and fix those. Can you clean those up? You've got 25 issues. Like, go solve problems that we have hanging out. Please, can you can you just tell anybody what the animator's deal yeah, was? Yeah, remember the animator? Let's tie up some stuff from 10 to 20 years ago all over the place. What's up with the original Blink nowadays? She was dead. Do we want to see what's going on? Right. Yeah, no. It's like, so, right. She was dead. That's the then book. she was Celine's Necrotia person. Now she becomes one of the new mutants. And now we're stuck with her in S.W.O.R.D. because she's the 616 version. Except she's the version of the character that no one gives a shit about. Yeah. Blink is in trouble. She needs to do a moon dragon fusion dance, honestly. Like, they need here's to the, do the here's same the trick. Here's trick. The, she is She is that Blink. No, of course like, she is that Blink as far as it matters at all. And we should just write her as that Blink forever, and who cares? But in practical terms, the Blink who did all of the Exiles stuff is not that yeah, Blink. Different blink. Yeah, it's just weird. But anyway. What was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Nate does nothing in that book except hooks up with Danny Moonstar. Doesn't wear a shirt, doesn't have powers for a while, and it doesn't matter. Norman Osborn gets deposed or whatever, but then it turns out the Sugar Man was in Norman Osborn's brig, and the Sugar Man just, like, pops out and is like, oh, I love to experiment on Nate Gray. So he drains all of Nate Gray's powers. The Sugar Man, by the way, is like a little orb with a face. He's big, but I'm saying, like, he's just a, he's just a sphere with four arms and, like, an ugly face. He's a Chris Bachelor doodle that has That has existed. somehow continued to exist. It's thrived. Listener Kay Hirsch, ages ago, suggested to me, I mentioned this in the Exodus episode, what if Sugar Man was the AOA counterpart of Jumbo Carnation? And that is so good that I feel like I want to write it someday. I mean, listen, that rules. That fucking actually. rules. That rules. Until such time as that happens, fuck the Sugar Man. Sure. His experiments drain all of Nate's powers out. So through the run of New Mutants, he has no powers, basically. He can do, like, tiny baby telekinetics, but that's it. He makes a little X with his fingers. So Danny and Hope teach him how to fight without powers. He bonds with Hope as, like, a sibling, kind of. That part's sweet. I do like that. She misses her dad, who's not around because he got lost in the future. And so... She's like, you're like the young version of my dad. And they bond. That stuff's cute. And he and Danny have a completely chemistry-free romance that is very strange. Very strange. Because he's hot and doesn't wear a shirt. It's just That's that he's it. hot. And like, but again, it, it, to me, it just feels like Danny Munster is just like not that into guys. They put it in a movie and no one complained. No we one like, yeah, cares. They made her gay in the movie and no one cares. It was like perfect. So just it was do it. One of the only good things about a very bad yeah, movie. Yeah, like just do it. Like just let her be, just let her kiss girls. Because this is it's fine. It's not, it's... It doesn't work. Anyway, so they end up together. He still doesn't have his powers. And then he makes a cameo when she's leading the Fearless Defenders later on. And they're still together. But that's... Don't read Fearless Defenders. Do look at every cover for it, because they're all killer. And some fun gay stuff in there with Valkyrie, actually. So if you're looking for, like... Oh, yeah, okay. If you're looking for, like, lesbian content in your Marvel comics, Fearless Defenders is worth peeking at. Um, But it's, like, it's no Angela. You know what I'm saying? Like, it... (laughs) Right. So that's it. Like, that's a wrap on him. That's in 2013, until suddenly he shows up for Disassembled, which apparently you... Oh, I don't like Disassembled. I may have summoned parts of Nate Gray into a cultural consciousness, but actually, in all reality, what Disassembled was, 
partly was the second arc of Matthew Rosenberg's astonishing X-Men run. Mm -hmm. He had an idea, which I like this idea in concept of the grandchildren of the Atom. Right. Like, what is that next step? Where does that go from there? And it was, hey, you got Leech and you got Nate Gray. These are two, like, hyper-powerful mutants that have kind of been left behind and ignored by the X-Men. Right, like, Nate and Legion are both characters who are omnipotent essentially and have not been Mm -hmm. properly supervised so the idea of let's bring them together this ultimate summer's messiah and the son of xavier and see what happens sort of clash of the titans but then they merge into one scarier being and in concept like the concept don't love the execution yeah i just don't think it works nate does act like a big idiot in this which is consistent with him but also he acts like an idiot in different ways like he listens to apocalypse's suggestions when apocalypse is like you want to show the world what like peace is you gotta destroy literally everything destroy all religion he's like okay bye vatican the aesthetic is still there and has now gone full jesus like white jesus from european churches but like very jesus oh yeah I mean, it's 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 pulling from that on purpose. Yeah. But it also I mean, this is what got them in hot water because he destroys all these religious sites around the world. And there was a bit of a controversy about that. There were some strongly worded letters about that one. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, honestly, the problem that I have, I think, with disassembled into Age of X-Men is like, I don't really understand his motivations I feel like if it was one or the other, I would get it more. If it was the, like, I need to destroy all religion because I am the second coming. I am the Messiah. That would be one. Literally just the Antichrist, right? Like, I am the only true prophet. He's destroying everything. He has declared himself the authoritarian religious leader of the world. Do that story. Or do the, what is this thing called? Love story, which is like a different story and i they didn't quite tie together for me so they did to me but i'm gonna explain to you what my thought is and as i am saying this in my head first i'm realizing that i don't know how much of this is on page and how much of this is a twitter joke that i made that i've just like manifested (laughs) this This is why you're on the episode because you've thought about nate gray a lot more than i have i thought about nate gray a lot here's the thing nate gray's whole thing in disassembled and really heavily in age of x-man is that intimacy in connection to people not not just sexual connection but like you know family relationships uh friendship all that stuff that's what's holding you back that's what's that's what's causing strife and all this stuff and i can believe that coming from him because he's a guy who definitely lost his virginity to his mom right after that experience you're gonna be like oh maybe maybe sex is bad for everybody now we should not do the that. incest stuff in x-man if we're gonna look at it is deeply fucked up so yeah i would also probably have weird feelings about sex and romance if i were that guy because it's not just the incest which again horrible sentence it's also the way his relationship with threnity goes is pretty oh, awful he is, and he's heartbroken he by has it not had a good relationship in his right. life so i get the idea of him eschewing love in that way right i get that I don't think it lands the way it needs to because the core book with Nate is also the book that's unraveled. Like it's it's doing the work that you have to do to say, hey, wait, the world's wrong. How do we fix right. it and go back to everything? And it has to serve two masters where like I am I'm a big fan of Zach Thompson, Lonnie Nadler as like creators. Me too. They're, uh, they're 
their stuff is some of my favorites that out that's out there. Anybody who uh, has enjoyed any of like the Kazar content on this stupid podcast should check out the current Kazar that Zach Thompson's doing because it's fucking incredible. Honestly, one of my it, it's a book that I deeply love, and also I am currently in a draft of an article about it that I've been putting off for a while because I've been busy. No, but like that's the thing about Age of X Man is that there's a ton of talent on Age of X Man that I think is incredible. Fantastic! Look at the look at the lineup on that editorial down. Like I think that so many great people worked on that. It's uneven for me. Oh, it's it's very uneven in my mind. I would put Prisoner X up against just about any X-Men miniseries ever. Prisoner X with that Irma Peralta art with Vita Ayala writing? Ooh. Yeah, it doesn't get much better than that. It's so good. There's a lot of stuff. There's good stuff elsewhere. Like, he feels poorly served as a character. If you if you cared, which I don't particularly. Well, he's a, but he is a, he's such he a cipher in it. Of it. Yeah. He's pushing these through and he's... What the Age of X-Man is, and you explained it in the character file, I'm sure, but he creates a utopia. And he's like, this is this is peace. Like, mutants win now. Coming from the Age of Apocalypse, he now creates a reality warp. His yeah. culmination is he creates a reality warp that's his vision rather than Apocalypse's. And his vision is a world that will be stable and orderly because there is no romantic love. Or religion. Those are the two things he gets rid of. He gets rid of religion. He gets rid of romantic love. He gets rid of... It, it mostly comes out, but, like, families and stuff, very specifically, like, Gabby is taken away from Laura. The Wolverines do not get to be a family. Nightcrawler does not get to be a family with his child. Right, which the create the, the child... That- can't get into that. Yeah. She's either a construct of the dimension or someone on Twitter suggested, like, what if Megan was holding Maggie when the warp happened and that's just Maggie okay, in the warp? that works. That would work. Hold on, wait, no, Megan Megan was very specifically not holding Maggie. We saw her the entire time. But, like, maybe she put her down before she entered the frame. She just had her to the side. Now, Maggie, you sit. You sit down, darling. Okay, over here. I don't know what her accent would be. Megan, it would be EastEnders. She learned how to right, right, speak right. Oh, from yeah. she, watching she was a the telly. She was a TV. Yeah. So she does, she does a bad English accent like the rest right, of us. Right, exactly. Perfect. No, Megan is the only British character I feel fully confident in my ability to voice because a bad TV British accent is how Megan would talk. Like, the whole thing about Apocalypse in Age of X-Men is that he's the antagonist, and his whole thing is about a familial relationship with his son, Evan. Right. Evan Sabiner, the clone. And he's being inspired. Well, one, he's being set up by Nate to be, like, the bad thing in Ola Moss or whatever that everyone mm-hmm. fights against, and then now Paradise is all saved. Which is, uh, it's clever. That works. Yeah. That, like. Like, it's like pulling the strings, it's all fake, there is conflict, but none of it's actually real. Well, it sets up Apocalypse well for this Krakoa era to establish first a story where the hero who we saw always striving against Apocalypse now has gone so around the bend that he's turning Apocalypse into a villain when Apocalypse isn't doing anything wrong. It sets up the pivot somewhat for uh, what Howard and Hickman then did with Apocalypse. It does, and I think... So, you know, this is this is all a matter of public record at this point. But, like, Age of X-Men was conceived after Krakoa was already set. Right. They said, this is what we're doing. Oh, crap, we need, like, six months. We need some time to develop the House of X, Powers of Ten, Dawn of X rollout. Can you give us some time? And that's, you know, people call that villain. That's part of editorial's job a lot that's of the time. That's literally is. editorial's job a lot of the time is we need, especially, and people don't give them enough credit for this, during the COVID printer shortages and also just like all the skip months we've had to do the mere fact that the hellfire gala lined up the way that it did is astounding look at the talent that's on these books you have 
Tim Seeley and Shauna McGuire, who are like, Shauna's a big author. Major, major bestselling author. Seeley is doing big things over at DC right now and is doing like a big event for Marvel this spring with Gwen, Zach and Lonnie, and Brisson, and Vita and Leah. They brought a lot of people together to do this. There's stuff in it that I think is really very good. But by the end of it, it's the age of mm-hmm. X-Man. I still don't really feel like I understand this version of the character. I think that's very fair in the context of this episode when you're going in trying to understand Nate Gray and where he's at. Right. Especially how that ties into the character. That previously existed. I had internalized, oh, he has some weird hangups about sex. And as someone who went to Christian school for 13 years, I was like, oh, okay, I understand you now, Nathan. Yeah, I think my issue with it is that he just feels like a different character in these sure. stories. And I don't have a problem with the character being revamped. I just, the connective tissue is not quite there for me. Oh, yeah. Like, going from Danny's boring boyfriend to this, I think I needed, like, a story in the middle. I wish there was the ability to do that. Because I honestly say that, I would say that Zach Thompson and Lonnie Nadler could tell that story on the strength of their cable run where they do an issue about Nate Gray. Yeah, In the middle of it. And it's great. I think any number of people who worked on this story could tell a great Nate Gray story that was connected to here. Absolutely. It's just that no one had used the character in like 10 years or five or something. It was going to be abrupt no matter what. It's just, it's a really dramatic shift. It's a really new direction to take the character. And it feels arbitrary to me. Oh, yeah. I can see where you're coming from there. But I don't really care because like I don't care about Nate. Like this is the thing. Like I, I, like (laughs) it doesn't, boil my blood or anything to be like oh this doesn't make like nate gray's character arc no longer you're not sitting here mad about nate gray all the time no i'm hearing but if i was a fan of the character i think that would be a real sticking point for me about this storyline and i sympathize with that because like here's the thing to take it to a place of madeline once again in a non-incestuous way a lot of people when they're talking about Madeline don't understand why I care about the Madeline from before Inferno because the Goblin Queen is the popular cool Madeline that people like most. Sure. I wouldn't be as obsessed with Madeline as I am if not for Inferno and the Goblin Queen. That's the best Madeline story for sure. But I think that Madeline's great tragedy and what makes Madeline so compelling as a character is all of the intense work that comes before it. I mean, this was my issue with sisterhood before I got the fraction get out of jail free card is like that was not recognizably Madeline to me at all. No. And it's fine to go to the most iconic version of a character. And I think for Nate Gray, like we're going to do the shaman thing again makes total sense. Mm -hmm. If I were a fan of this character, I'd be upset that the heart of the character had been sort of set aside because we had this new idea that was aesthetically and semiotically based on the most popular image of the character. You know what I mean? No, I, I think I think that's right. My thing about it is like. Nate Gray is a loose end who there's no real good way to incorporate into the X-Men. I mean, we're going to get questions about this. Like, what would you do with Nate Gray? And my answer is literally nothing. I would never have the character appear again. So if that's your question, I literally think he should just never appear again in a comic book. He will come back at some point because they always do. And someone who was a huge Nate Gray fan when they were a kid is going to bring back Nate Gray because that is how this works. Hey, that's how Age of X-Men work. Spoiler alert. That's how every Marvel or DC comic works in the 21st century so there's nothing wrong with that i'm just saying that 
it serves a useful narrative purpose, which is getting rid of this character who causes a right. lot of narrative problems before you're about to do a soft reboot that relaunches the entire franchise and streamlines it into a new thing. So that makes total sense. Look at who they kill right before this. They kill off Sugar Man, they kill off Dark Beast. Mm -hmm. Holocaust is already gone. They kill off all the alternate reality characters, send the exiles back home. It's cleanup. Yeah, it's like, and we're good now. Except for baby Cable. We now have a young hot Cable for a hot minute that if we want to do stuff, let's do stuff with it. Right. You don't need X-Man if you have hot young Cable. Well, now we don't Now we don't have hot young and Cable. And now we we'll probably get cable. Nate back. I'm just saying, it's there, <laughs> with that, it was this character is something we can use to streamline Cable. Right. If Krakoa was in general about resetting almost every character to a more functional place where they're useful for future story, like, in, in, again, like the additive rather than destructive thing that yep. Hickman emphasized so strongly. That's, I guess, what I would say is I do think that this story, the Age of X-Men story, the disassembled story in particular, is destructive to Nate Gray rather than additive to him. I think that it would be very hard now to bring this character back the way that he was before that story. I agree with all of that, except for we spent two hours saying how, yes, but before that, he wasn't a good character. I'm not start. saying he is. I'm just, again, like, I'm not eager to get back to what came before. But mm -hmm. if, again, like, from a fan perspective, I do think that it is a junking of the character to some extent. Sure. No, I think And I, I think always that's sympathize with fans of characters who get junked is, I guess, that's what I'm saying. I think that's a fair read. That gets us about to, I mean, that gets us exactly to where he's at. Uh, there's one thing I want to make sure you are aware of. Do you know about what uh, Chris Anka and Christina Strain were going to do with Nate? Are you aware of that? I may have known and forgotten, but I can't think of it right now. Because again, I'm not super keeping tabs on the Nate Gray of it all. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I say we're going to do like they ever got editorial permission or anything. But Christina Strain noticed that Nate Gray's fans at the time were mostly men who were attracted to dudes without a shirt on and had a lot of abs. Right. So she wanted to pitch just a new X-Man book with him being gay. I don't know what the book was going to be about. It doesn't really matter. It just matters that Chris Anka did draw the best ever picture of Nate Gray. Because oh, well, send me that. I mean, you know, I'd love to see that. But my thing is like, yes, there's like a queer vibe to the character, like many 90s pretty boys, like R.I.P. Anne Rice. We were just talking about Interview with the Vampire on the mm -hmm. Exodus episode, which we recorded before. Oh, I have seen this Chris Anka picture. This is great. Yeah. Honestly, the best design you could do with Nate. It's good. If you good. were going to do Nate it's just it's just that one. The big thing is, if you're going to make a Summers gay, it's Rachel. Oh, yeah. Number one with a bullet. I think Excalibur 26 was a really lovely step in that direction, and we'll see what happens in the future. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you. I don't often, you know, gently... Cradle my, my, friend's, my friend's face and turn them to me and say, that's my Zach, and kiss you delicately on the cheek i have personally never done that in a non-romantic way to be fair i'm gay and like gay people sometimes sure. just like fuck friends but in this this is not a platonic friendship scene it's just not it's simply not right. so i am excited to see what the future may hold yes that's that's the yes. thing is like you know rachel is the gay summers to me like they're all gay unfortunately is the thing but like if corporate is going to give you one that's the one you want yeah i'd rather have rachel stories i'd rather than have nate rachel stories. stories than like period than nate gray stories but i would love more queer male characters who are not 15 
the fact that most of the queer characters are Academy X era characters is is a bit of a bugbear of mine because it means that with North Star married off and not that many other adult characters, we just don't have the content that I would relate to. Like, guess I don't relate to teenagers having teenage right, feelings. Right, you're, you're an adult man. Right. I'm about to be 34. Like, I would like to read about people in their 30s who are gay. Right. And I, I'm hoping we'll get more and more of that. I'm really excited for Steve's Marauders. I think now is a good time to get into the listener questions. These were fun. I had fun like sifting through them. If we don't get to yours, I'm sorry, but I simply can't talk about Nate Gray too much longer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just this. We've talked about Nate Gray more than anyone, anyone ever, ever has. has, except for like the two slash fangirls I knew in like 1998. Who were really? I hope they're doing well. I hope they're doing great. I'm not in touch, but if you're out there, God bless. Piper writes, hello again. Just had a quick question about my favorite weird alternate timeline kid not named Rachel. In the age of X-Man, Nate doesn't set himself as the center of his new world. In fact, he's content to be a side character for the real heroes of his world, namely Hope Summers and the other X-Men taking more visible roles. What do you think this says about Nate? That he likes to control from the shadows? How much of that world did he really have control over? Also, why wasn't he on the list of Omegas in House of X? Much love, Piper. So I would say as far as him not being the center point of that world makes a lot of sense to me for like his character. Yeah. Like if, even if you look at, if you look at his entire book, he's on the periphery of everything. Yeah. Look at his solo. He never tried, except for the arc where he's being manipulated by the purple man. Don't worry about it. Yeah. He never really seeks out the spotlight. No, that's, that's not who he is, but he knows that his best friend, Spider-Man told him with great power comes great responsibility. And he had this great power and he was like, well, then my responsibility is to make this really cool mutant world. Right. I think also that his whole thing is about how like religion is bad, right? Right. In this story is like sex is bad and religion is bad. So I'm going to hide my hot Jesus self and not be the center of attention is also like he part wears of that. a shirt for the first time in 20 years. Notably. Is it much of a shirt? No, it's the deepest V I've ever seen. But it's a shirt. It technically counts. It is a garment that one wears above the waist. It just cuts off on the nipples. It does. It's right there. I think that's what it is. As for the Omegas list, I think that that's meant to suggest to us that the character's not coming back for a long time. Those are the characters they want to do stuff with. They're like, these are the important ones. Those are the characters we're going to do something with. So this is the list. Is he technically an Omega-level mutant? I would say probably yes. But since he's not in this reality anymore, just don't worry about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's fine. He's fine. That was a list of potential assets for Krakoa, right? Like yes. he's not in this plane of reality. They don't know where Absalom Mercator is, but they know he exists, right? So like it's it's a list of here's who we've got theoretically that we're aware of. From an out of story perspective, it's Hickman saying these are the 13 odd people. I forget the exact number, but Some. these are them. Stop asking if these other characters are Omega level mutants. They're not. Right. That is the function of it. And unfortunately, people still have not stopped because they can't help themselves. You know, and I get it because it annoys me that Rachel isn't on it. Like, I get it. I get it. But we have to let it go. This is the list. 
Wilson Hayworth writes, greetings, Connor and Zach. I was excited to hear that y'all were covering the most festive mutant of all, Nate Gray. So here's my question. We know that Nate Gray was raised in a theater troupe, and as a former theater kid, I need to know. With all his vast power, why has Nate not taken Broadway by storm? If he did, what kind of shows would we get from Nate? Nate Gray Superstar? Mulan Rogue? Six, but with the five? Okay, I'm done. But seriously, though, why is this shirtless wonder not on stage? Best wishes and happy Xmas, Wilson. I think we just kind of address this a little bit, which is that he's never really sought out the spotlight intentionally, but he did seem to enjoy the theater, and I bet he would like to have like a modest stage career. He did really enjoy the one time where he could rock out in like his mesh top. When those three hippie girls were taking care of him. Yeah, and they, they just threw him on stage and he starts singing this song like he'd heard it before. Yeah, he's a natural performer. Oh, yeah. So here's the thing. If he does ever come back, he can hook up with, as previously established in other episodes of the Cerebro Extended Universe, he could join the Lady Masterminds theater troupe that they've set up on Krakoa, which is what I hope they're doing. Or they're like TV. You know, I, I think that Mastermind Studios from Age of X-Men should exist and that it should be an arm of X-Corp. And I think that like Reagan should be making like mutant content. And he could be like a dreamy soap star also. There are all kinds of things you could do with him if he were not a megalomaniacal god. I think he could chill out though. Like I think if he just had a different outlet for his energies, he could he could he could be cool with it. Well, he's making his little like, you know, Sim City universe now that he's Yeah, just that's so what he's 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 one of those guys who got good. really into model trades. Yeah, he's that's good. On it. Like I truly don't think we need him back. He's good where he is. We're good, you know? It's like how on Just Like That, Natasha was like, Carrie, we're cool, we're fine, we're good now, but like we don't need to follow each other on Instagram. I don't need to follow Nate Gray on Instagram. I'm good where we're at, is sort of how I feel about it. You wouldn't follow Nate Gray on Instagram in general, though? Oh, I would. <laughs> I mean, like, listen, I'm not made of stone, but I'm just saying, metaphorically speaking... We don't need right. to be in close contact. On the metaphorical Instagram. No, literal Instagram where I'm just looking at his cum gutters. I'm going to follow Nate Gray on Instagram. Jeez, Pete's bud. What? Is that not what straight people call them? I don't... Can... Chantel writes, hey Connor, <laughs> my name is Chantel, been a longtime X-Men fan since the late 90s. Betsy's also my favorite X-Men, Butterflies Unite. Your podcast has been life-changing and carrying me through my 12-hour work shifts for a couple months now. Well, God bless, that sounds like hell. Anyway, I was wondering about your thoughts on Nate Gray and the Phoenix. Why do you think they haven't been linked the way Rachel and the Force have? Do you think he should be a host? He has all the qualifications of a proper host, in my opinion, even manifested the Phoenix Raptor once. But Marvel hasn't made the push or even addressed it during the end of Gray's storyline. Good question. This has come up in the Discord a couple times, and I'm not sure if I've ever really said it on the show. I don't like, and I know that it is possible, I know that it can be a thing that happens, I don't like whenever a man hosts the Phoenix Force. It feels wrong, It feels right? wrong to me. The Phoenix Force is life incarnate. It is a mother of the cosmos. The White Hot Room is like the cosmic womb, right? Like, there is this whole thing there that like i just feel like the person hosting the phoenix Wars should identify as a woman i just like do the phoenix has a lot of femme energy and that's okay it is like pure feminine power i mean it was created as a way for chris claremont to actualize marvel girl and turn her into a really powerful superhero like it was literally right. feminism like, that was the idea, right? And then it goes awry, obviously, because, you know, she has a little broccoli souffle. She's hungry. But yeah, she's Listen, hungry. Listen, amongst us. 
I think the biggest thing for me is, listen, Nate Gray always is saying, I'm the most powerful whatever of everything of all time. He doesn't need more. Yeah, he doesn't need more. And like, I do believe that the Phoenix, just like the Goblin Queen, is a monstrous feminine archetype specifically. And that's why I just don't like when men host it. I don't really like when anyone but Gina Rachel hosts it. I love Echo, so I'll let her have her turn with it. But it feels weird. Now, Connor, I do have a question for you. What do you think of Nate Gray hosted the Goblin Force? The Goblin Force, luckily, was erased retroactively from all existence at the end of Mutant X and will never appear again. So uh, that's fine. Honestly, Nate Gray did host the Goblin Force. That's uh, 41. Mm. That's X-Men 41, basically. But yeah, that's sort of my take on it. I similarly like really hate the idea of Quentin actually hosting the Phoenix Force for many reasons, but especially oh, for that one. Oh, it should never actually happen. Yeah, no, I mean, Morrison presents, I'll get into this in a Quentin Choir episode, but like in Here Comes Tomorrow, the point is, the point of a Phoenix Quentin in Here Comes Tomorrow is to illustrate what a waste the actual Quentin that we got was. Yeah. It's not to be like the ultimate host of the Phoenix Force is Quentin Choir. That's... No, I'm sorry. Even in a story, that should never happen because that's the, that's the like, 200 years later future version. Like, that is what he finally become. Yeah, or, like, what we will never have because our 616 version is not a strong enough or moral enough person to become that. And, like, that's the point. Right. It's like you're supposed to long for that, but you can't have it. So there's that. Um, but, yeah, I just, I don't like when men have it, and I don't think Nate should have it. He's powerful enough without it. The question of him and Rachel is actually interesting because I think that the reason Rachel is not on the Omega-level mutant list is because when Nimrod called her the first Omega-level mutant back in the right. 80s, she was secretly hosting the Phoenix. She didn't know yet, but, like, it was inside her. And Nimrod is connecting back up to all of the dominions and all that stuff who are notoriously afraid of two things and it's the phoenix and galactus right like i think that she's an omega level threat because she has the phoenix force not necessarily because she is by herself an omega level mutant but rachel's really complicated because claremont's intention for her that she's the perfect host of the phoenix that was born from it is like very specific and doesn't jive very well with the general gray summer's lore which is why I think pivoting her into the Ascani stuff was a good choice oh, in works. the 90s. I still think that a logical way to take her would be to start kind of doing that in the present, the way that we're doing Nimrod in the present now, like to do Ascani stuff because that's a unique thing for her that isn't just the other Phoenix. But we're digressing. I just yeah. don't think that Nate and the Phoenix are a particularly fruitful option. He's the perfected Cable, and Cable and the Phoenix aren't particularly connected either. Oh, that's a... I would want to see that the least. The least, actually. right. And that's what I'm saying is like the point of Nate Gray is that he's cable without the TO virus. And so he has his full power potential. I don't think you need to complicate it with the Phoenix when that's not something that's ever really been that closely tied to Cable's story. Mm hmm. Patrick Talbot writes, hello, Connor, an esteemed guest. One, it seems pretty clear Hickman et al. wanted Nate off the board before Hoxpox. He hadn't been a major character in years. I think I last remember him dating Danny, LOL, in New Mutants. And right before the event, he comes back, is Jesus, creates his own reality, and then stays there with a sexy golem Magneto to live out the rest of his days. Why do you think this is? Was he too powerful to have around? This seems strange given the prominence of Monarch, Powerhouse, R.I.P., and even the looming off-screen presence of Mercator. Did they not want him around to detract from Teen Cable? Now that Zaddy Cable is back, do you think that Nate could fill a place in our hearts that's been left behind by Babel? I doubt it, as he's about as moping as he is hot. But what do you think? Two, is Strife attracted to X-Man? Are they both bottoms? Could they make it work? 
So <laughs> I'm going to let you take number two because I I just I don't feel like I've got a good answer on that one. I don't think Nate is mask enough for Strife. Strife is in like a very Liefeldian headspace, and I think right that he it's too uh, too Twinkie for Strife's taste. Personally, is my my feeling. Sure. As for the first question, Nate comes in disassembled because Rosenberg had that as a plan. Right. And he's just there. Like that that was all that was already kind of like sketched out as yeah, we'll do that arc. That's fine because the plans were up in the air on what was going to happen next. At that point, I know that Zack and Lonnie love X-Men. Like my first conversation with them ever was them talking about how much they liked X-Men. I was like, "Man, you guys know he sucks, right?" And they're like, "No, nah, we like him." So I think they just wanted to keep playing in that space. And if it was already available and easy enough to say, let's get somebody off the board, let's get somebody off the board. Right. They already have a lot of the most powerful mutants around. They don't need another the most powerful. Right. I think the problem with Nate is twofold. One is that he's a redundant character with Rachel and Cable and especially now Hope, who is Mm -hmm. the ultimate mutant messiah, which is what Nate Gray kind of was. And then was outmoded by her. She's the end of that motif. So he's kind of just extraneous at this point. Then there's the fact that he, by his nature, requires you to explain the Age of Apocalypse. And I think that if you are introducing Moira X, introducing all of the Dominions and stuff, introducing the Homo Novissima concept that ties together all of the pre-existing human and AI stuff from X-Men comics, if you are introducing so many big concepts, you're bringing back Otherworld and making it 10 times as big. Like, if you're doing all of this stuff that Hickman and his collaborators were planning on, I think you want to get rid of as many alternate universe things Mm -hmm. to explain as you can. And, like, you're keeping Rachel, so that's still one that you got. You have Days of Future Past. That's the really iconic one. The second most iconic one is AOA, but we've tapped that well so dry that really, like, revisiting at this point doesn't sound appealing. At best, you, like, hold him for, like, if all goes well, three or four years down the line. Right, bring him back to year five. You know? Let's see what Nate thinks about Apocalypse having a wife and generally being chill. Like, Apocalypse is now a heroic figure. What does Nate Gray think about that? That's a story for, like, year five, right? Like, that is, he's like Dr. Manhattan now. I mean, like, at the end of Watchmen. Okay, I I thought you were talking about Dr. Manhattan as, like, the the, the character that fights Superman. Like, he can just pop up in any Superman story if you want now. No, I mean, like, after Watchmen... The end of Watchmen is such where it's like, he's just off being God now. And if you ever want to become, I mean, this is what Jean was when she was in the white hot room. It was like, have her show up as a deus ex machina. You can do that with him whenever you want, but it's not vital. And right now, taking him off the page means you don't have to explain the age of apocalypse. It's just the same reason that they killed off the other ones. I mean, like Dark Beast also, here's the thing, like Dark Beast has to shuffle off the page because we're doing the whole once and for all fall of Hank McCoy storyline, right? Wait, 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 wait. hold on. You You think Hank McCoy may face repercussions for his actions, Connor. I don't know if that will happen, actually. I'm not 100% sure that he will, because in terms of, like, the satire that I think Percy is doing, like, Henry Kissinger is having dinner on Park Avenue right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I don't so... think people like that, though. I, I think from a story standpoint, that's unsatisfying. I agree and i am hoping we will see some repercussions soon i wish we could write life with like satisfying character with narratives that really feel great and you're like what a satisfying season finale 
I am hopeful. I, I mean, I would love to see Sage take over X-Force and try to turn it into something that is, well, let's say less evil. You know, that would be cool. Yeah, because, yeah. We're getting off topic. My point is just that since Percy's doing a Hank McCoy 616 as a villain arc, you don't want to have Dark Beast around. So you get rid of right. Dark Beast. If you're getting rid of Dark Beast and you're sending Exiles Blink away and you're getting rid of the Sugar Man, like, why have Nate around? No one from his reality is left. We got rid of Holocaust ages ago. Yeah, they they uh blew him up. Yeah, Good and like him. we haven't seen the genocide version that Remender created, and I'm fine with that. You know what? AOA William Stryker is still like hanging out. I think he's no, the last he's not. One. I refuse. I'm sorry. We're just not. Go- no, I don't even like when regular William Stryker shows up in a comic. Oh, so. you mean, we're, we're, we're not getting into William we Stryker. We can't. We absolutely nope. cannot do that. But nope. I don't think he should ever have appeared in a comic again after God Loves Man Kills. Ever. Oh, no. He absolutely shouldn't have. No. It was never it was again. A crime that Claremont brought him back. Yes. And any story that you do, well, it was because he was in X2, you know? But yeah, like in whole, name man. only, though. Like it's so, because it was just, it was, never mind. Yeah. No. Nope. Yep. Nope. Nope. But there's no plot that you couldn't have just done with Cameron Hodge instead. So I, it's the striker of it all is just a true. It's that's just tragic to me. Point is, I think they wanted him off the page because he's too complicated to explain to new readers. And they really wanted this to be a jumping on point for new readers. And they're already introducing a whole bunch of new concepts for us to just hold in our heads. So let's not worry about the age of apocalypse right now, especially if we're doing something very new with apocalypse. It's a very good call on their part. Yeah. Jay Anderson writes, hello, Connor and guests. Throughout the entire Krakoa era, I've had this worry in the back of my mind that the entire Hickman run really stemmed from the plan hatched by Nate and Magneto in the final pages of Age of X-Men Omega. I mean, Nate and Magneto were hatching a plan for a new world. Then the next week, Charles is welcoming back his gooey X from the dead in his fancy helmet. Is there any chance that Nate is behind the Krakoa era and not Moira? Jay Anderson, proud member of the House of Zaladane. Jay, no. There is no chance yeah, no. that that's happening, so I want you to relax. No, it was it was literally... They knew what was coming next, and they were like, thematically, we did this utopia. What if everyone was like, but could we do a utopia? Right. That's it. That was the whole thing. That's literally it, and you never need to worry about that. It's fine. Him and and Magneto so can vibe. It's okay. Here's what I'll say to really reassure you. That's not how Jonathan Hickman writes stories. If Nate Gray was the architect of any of this, he would appear in Hawksbox. Yes, like the whole point is that you can jump on with House of X one and you're jumping on. You do not have to read any X Men comic that's ever been published before that. It's a better experience if you have, but you don't have to. So the answer to the mysteries, none of them can be from something that you don't get given to you or reiterated in something that Hickman gave you right there. Like everything from Hawkspox to Inferno is going to be something that was seeded within that period is my assumption because that's how Hickman writes every story. And I'm not saying it's always tied up 100% with a bow because it's big two comics and that's just not possible. But to the best of his ability, that's how he tends to write. That's how he does it. And if you haven't noticed, it's because he knows that X-Men fans don't read things that aren't X-Men and he's fine with that. He's like, so I can do this again. I'm also fine with that. So I love that for me and him and all of us. Arnell Lindbury writes, hello, Connor and esteemed Zach. First, I'd like to say thank you for the hours of wit-sharpening analysis that you and your beautiful pantheon of guests have delivered to the world at such a real time we're having out here. There is something special about the time you have all built into these episodes, which truly supports an almost religious passion for these characters, while rightly reinforcing the necessary exigence of dwying through the things that are just not worth being angry about in these books. A particularly important skill for anyone attempting, like myself, to appreciate Nate Gray. My question is, 
In both of your expert opinions, do you view Nate as an alternate version of Cable, or is he, as I would argue, a little brother in a family of limited naming ambitions? As someone who adopted X-Men as a personal favorite, in hindsight, because he was the queerer and more understandably angry younger summer sibling, I think so much of the dismissive or outright negative reception Nate-based stories have received are related to a misguided presentation of him as another Cable, as opposed to how I tend to view him, as the son Scott never expected because he directly reflects so much of Scott's own trauma at the hands of Sinister and Apocalypse, in a way that's almost more personal personal in Cable's similar struggles. Though Cable's experienced tremendous suffering, he also received the protections of Rachel and Jean and Scott and like a host of gadgets and pouches which Nate never really had and maybe didn't need. As mentioned in the Rachel episode with Sarah Century, Rachel is an anchor for her family and Nate's an emotional mess. Wouldn't it be cool to see some healing between those two in that special lesbian big sister swishy younger brother way? Like when Simon and Mary would have heart-to-hearts on 7th Heaven? Deep cut. <laughs> Thank you again, Times One Million, and please send a shout out to every Cerebral listener who's also streamed your brilliant Lourdes Chantel episode of X of Words. Yours in X, Arn. Thank you for writing in, Arnell. I did really enjoy doing X of Words, so check that episode out. It's only like 20 minutes because I made them go twice as long as they normally do, but... <laughs> you have that effect on people, Connor. We talked about this a little bit earlier. He's not an alternate cable in a literal sense, but narratively, I would say that he is one. He is. He just, I don't think, fills that role in the comics all that much because he doesn't have the same, like, he's a mutant messiah, but without the same, like, firm mission that Cable has. Not that Cable's mission doesn't change, but he always has one. Well, yeah, because Cable's mission is always in flux, but he always has something going on. The problem with Nate Gray is that, again, he's poochy. Like, he's a concept without a theme. Like, he has nothing Mm -hmm. to do. Cable has so much to do that they don't feel like related characters. In the way that most AOA characters, they feel like an equivalent, even if it's, like, through a mirror, darkly, or whatever, like you feel like you're looking at something that's reflective. Apart from the powers and like some of the aesthetic similarities and literally who their biological parents are DNA wise, like they don't have that much in common either in personality or in story. Honestly, I think this is part of Nate Gray's big problem as a character is that he is an alternate cable, except there aren't that many interesting stories to tell with them because they don't mirror each other that well. I agree with all of that. Uh, but very importantly, Negre is not the Simon Camden of the Summers family. He's the Robbie Palmer who lives with the Camdens for multiple seasons. What are you talking about? That's exactly who he is. God. My wife is re-watching Seventh Heaven. Wow. She doesn't oh, think it's good. That must be a dark experience now, though, isn't it? It's Here's the wild thing about Seventh Heaven. It is way more progressive as a thing. No, I know. I just mean about be? like I would have trouble watching that show now with like what came out about the dad actor. Oh no, that is also um yeah, no. I would find that a hard watch, I think. Yeah, that's a weird one. Jared Williams writes, Good evening, Connor and Zach Jenkins. Thanks again for making this podcast one of the main reasons it has been so easy to jump back into the X-Line since Hoxpox. You really have opened a lot of your fellow mutants' minds to different perspectives due to you and your dad's respective backgrounds and world experiences. Hell, you even managed to break things down to the flat scans in a manner that's digestible. So once again, hats off to you, my friend. I told you, we're absolutely friends in my mind at this point, LMAO. On to my questions. Given the status boost and cultural importance within mutantdom that being a member of the Grey Summers family comes with, I mean, you said it yourself they're essentially the skywalkers of the franchise why does nate feel so forgotten about in terms of story importance 
Every member of that family brings a certain something that makes them stick, in my opinion, except him. Given how all of Scott and Jean's kids are all under one roof at the beginning of Dawn of X, I wonder what the dynamic in the Summers house would be like if Nate stuck around to bond with his lesbian sister and fellow bi brother, especially with Teen Cable in the mix. Two, you're the world's foremost Madeline expert and her defense attorney, so how can I defend her when people bring up the slightly incestuous thing she had with Nate when she killed Threnity, too? We've got to get her away from those Summers men. <laughs> Second question first. I love Threnody, not to be Greedo shot first about it, but Threnody struck first with her powers before Madeline struck back. However, I do think in my like Madeline did nothing wrong mindset that I have. Sure. Threnody is one of the few things that I do. If that's her, which like, again, this is the Red Queen problem, but I'm going to say it is. If that was Madeline, I do think that she owes Threnody one. And that's a story that I have a lot of thoughts about and that maybe one day I'll get to write. So I'm not going to say anything else about it. She should just apologize. It's fine. We all make mistakes. I have a lot of thoughts about that story and I think it would be really cool. And I don't want to share any of them on this podcast. You know what? If anyone if anyone wants to do a deep dive revisit of the events of X-Men 25, I am all for reading that comic. You don't want to write comics about comics, but I think that... I think I could tell a really cool story about Madeline and Threnody. I think you could. Anyway. I don't remember what the first question was. The first question was, given that how important the Grey Summerses are, why do you think that this character doesn't quite stick or stand out? And I think it's because he doesn't have any real connection to the family. He doesn't. He hangs out with them like twice. Yeah, like he doesn't know these people. So he's just not like he's cousin Oliver. Like if there's no real connection and when people are thinking about the gray summers family they're not thinking about him usually no they aren't i mean it's it's weird that he's the one that cyclops sacrifices his life for in the 12th like of all of the summers kids well but at that point rachel's dead she's about to come back i know but she hasn't yet i mean the 12 and that whole thing where cyclops sacrifices himself for nate is like the ultimate in wow they really gave this character a go didn't they like the late 90s, like, wow, X-Man gets 75 issues. Like, that kind of thing. Because, yeah, that is crazy. But when you think about it, X-Man was a pretty big character. He was. He was important. I do like that around that, like, right before then, they make a conscious effort to connect him and Scott more. Like, yeah. they know that they have to do some work to make this pay off. So there's an arc where he teams up with Scott and Gene, mm -hmm. and Scott gives him his old X-Factor uniform. Which is cute. It's cute. It's also the funniest thing in the world to me that they continue to not know if it's white or gold on the piping. Yeah, well, you know. They do that. They do the Astonishing X-Men 3 issue 1, where they all team up. Like, they try. It doesn't work, but they do give it a shot. Jay Brown writes, I know this Nate Gray episode is secretly giving me a Threnity episode, so I'm going to ask about her here, LOL. Hello, Connor and Zach. I hope this email finds you both safe and cozy during the end of this very weird year. I know you guys are going to bring up Threnity, so I'm going to ask. She's still alive, right? What's she been doing all these years? What's the deal with her and Nate's zombie baby? Was that just Dwight? I think she has a lot of potential, and I'd love to see her maybe face Sinister again. Her powers are awesome. A medium necromancer psychic vampire combo. So cool. And I think she should have a second chance in the Krakoan era. And frankly, I'm never going to say no to more black women mutants. Maybe discussed some of this already but i just had to ask thanks in advance and happy new year to you and yours sincerely jay from nyc p.s would celine try to recruit Vanity because of her awesome death themed power set it seems like celine's jam in a major way lol that is another thing i'm not gonna answer because i have a lot of thoughts about stories that i could tell with celine and threnity and madeline and pick up on basically everything that was good about x-man which is specifically things about those three characters 
Here's the answer. She was off page for a long time. Then Cullen Bunn brought her back in a Deadpool story where to have adequate necroplasmic energy to feed her zombie demon baby, she became an assassin and was killing people. And it ends with Deadpool killing the baby to like liberate her. And I don't like it. It's not a great story. It's a bad story. It does give us the gift of we can just do Threnody like regular. Yeah, now Threnody can just be around and she doesn't have to, we don't have to worry about the baby. I mean, again, like giving any superhero character a baby is a real albatross that you have to deal with because they can't age unless you age them up somehow with like a plot device. So I get it, but also like, it's not a great story, so... They gave her a complex baby, too. Like, it wasn't just a yeah, regular no, it was baby. A, it's a Summer's Grey demon zombie baby, so that's a lot. And we've already we've already got a Summer's Grey demon zombie baby who's possibly half bird, like, up in space somewhere. If we're gonna pull the trigger on a surprise Summer's grandchild, it's gonna be that one, not... Man, imagine being the second-ranked secret Summers baby that they could use if they ever want to do yeah. it. Yeah, and uh, it's Corsair's grandchild, I guess, whereas this would be Scott's grandchild. It doesn't matter. Point is, like, <laughs> it's just, like, in terms of, like, long-lost Summerses, I would rather deal with Vulcan's baby or Catherine Ann before I would do anything with, with Trinity's baby. Too many secret babies we have. Well, Catherine Ann wouldn't be a baby. No. That would just be a surprise. I'm alive, which I think would be a lot of fun. Chris Hassan writes, Hi, Connor and Zach. Nate Gray really put the X-Men through the ringer with Age of X-Men. It made me think about all the other times the X-Men have had to endure Summer's Gray family drama. That time Jean ate his son and all the X-Men had to battle for her honor. That time Scott dragged the X-Men into a war with the Avengers and then murdered Charles Xavier. That time Strife unleashed the legacy virus on the world. And since it's Cerebro, we can't leave out the Inferno. Despite it all, the Summer's Gray dynasty has managed not to get canceled and seems to hold a lot of clout on Krakoa and beyond. Do you think the X-Men and mutant kind genuinely like and look up to Scott, Gene, and their wacky family, or are most rolling their eyes at them in private, or passive aggressively tweeting about them when they do things like announce they're forming a new X-Men team or bringing democracy to Krakoa. Keep up the excellent work and happy holidays, Chris Hassan. I love this question. I think that you would have a variety of opinion, and I think it would be two major opinions. I think that there are tons of mutants who love Scott and Jean and their family in the way that people love the Royals or the Kennedys or any number of actual dynasties in real life that mm-hmm. everyday people around the world are obsessed with. That would be very, very real. I think that someone like Tempo would find them insufferable. Yo, no, there are mutants who are... Radical mutants are just, like, fuck the Summerses. And that, I think, would be fun. I don't even think it's all radical mutants. I think there's some mutants who just want to vibe. Oh, and sure, just wanna, sure, sure, sure. They just want to relax. They're like, y'all, I do not care about your weird space stuff. You said I could have a cool island house. Can I just do that without you guys being weird? But I just mean, like, the dirtbag left of mutantdom has podcasts oh. about how much they hate the Summerses. You ever think about how Wildside and Forum are just living with, like, a dog outside of a junk house? And they're just, like enjoying hating the summers right now that's what i'm saying is like i feel like there there would be a robust irony poisoned internet generation of millennial and gen z mutants who have more left politics and are just like fuck the summers grays the same way that people in reality are like fuck the kennys fuck the clintons fuck these people you know like i just think that that would be a thing but i think that the average mutant let's say especially 
over the age of 30 is probably just like, oh, love them. Iconic family. Like, so great. Well, because if they're not best friends with a Grey Summers, they are a friend of a friend of a Grey Summers. And it would be, you can't just go out there and do that where freaking Dragoness doesn't care. And I will say, like, much as I give Scott and Jean shit, like, they have sacrificed themselves many, many times for the benefit of mutant kind. And I do think that it's a little different from the political dynasties we have in real life where it's like, you know, they're not sacrificing their lives for the species, right? But, like... I don't think Bobby Kennedy ever... Well, actually... Gave up his soul well, to, like, the I mean, apocalypse. He, oh, wait, no, wait, no, he was... Okay. He was assassinated. I picked, <laughs> of, of all the Kennedys I could have picked, I did. I did pick the I'm like, one. Like he, yeah, he, okay. he did get assassinated. You know what? Let's, I was just pulling. A, yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. No, I mean, well, to be fair, there are a couple you could have pulled out who were assassinated. But uh, I, I'm more, I'm more saying like when people are. <laughs> You know what? No, we're just gonna we're gonna move on. We're gonna move on. I no, I gotta. I'm gonna and I'm gonna leave that in. I'm sorry. That's too funny. I can't take that out. Okay, we gotta keep going. going. Last question. We gotta keep going because we're almost done. Last question. Rob Secundus writes, "Dear Connor and Zach, one of the reasons why I think we all find superhero comics so great is because of the way continuity accrues over time. We love this being a massive story with decades and decades of hidden gems and interesting corners to explore. Other than a few soap operas and pro wrestling organizations, this is the only narrative space that offers that sort of experience. On the other hand, that same fact allows, for example, for innocent podcasters to be cursed with bound copies of the 76 extant issues of X-Man. So, oh yeah, because there's a negative one, so there are 76. Oh, there's a, there is a negative one. Also, there are two And there are annuals. Ones. Right, so there probably are more than a oh god. There's seventy eight, eight in this, but also uh, that doesn't count. These don't have the crossovers in it. That just like chilled me the bone, but it's fine. So I put to you: Is the existence of at worst horrible and at best profoundly weird comics like the X Men series? A boon to superhero universes or a mark against them? When you dive into Nate Gray, do you find something valuable or are you tempted to rethink your love for this thing that has shaped so much of our lives? Best, Rob. I have a lot of feelings about this one. All right, I'll go first real quick and then let you go long. I want to hear your thoughts. I would much rather have something like this exist than not exist. Even when it frustrates me, even when it forces me to defend my fave against charges of incest. I mean, listen, it's so crazy that we're talking about it 30 years later. And I think that that is cool. I mean, this is how I feel about Chuck Austin. Like, would I undo the Draco? Yes, absolutely, with everything in me. Overall, am I thrilled that the Chuck Austin run exists because it is so fun to talk about? Yes. And that is 20 years after I was buying it month to month and going, what the fuck is going on in this comic book? I prefer always a big swing that doesn't land. I think Mutant X is so funny like the goblin force people taunt me about it because it sucks but also mutant x is hilarious you have to laugh at a certain point you have to enjoy things that are not great because they're fun and that's how i feel about this and why when zach gave me a list of all the characters he'd like to come on to talk about i immediately was like oh let's do nate gray for christmas because i was like that'll be stupid and fun because he's stupid and fun it's so dumb Here's the thing, and Rob, Rob's a friend, he knows this about me. I love it when comics do something like big and dumb. And I love that, especially in the 80s and 90s, there was a level of excess to comics. 
that allowed big and dumb to continue for far longer than yes. it ever should have and couldn't you couldn't do this book today the fact that these Krakoa titles the ones that are ending right now to relaunch for Destiny of X like those are long runs in modern comics that's a long run it is getting more than five is cool getting more than ten is impressive getting more than twelve that's a whole year buddy getting more than twenty four that's very rare now unless it's a huge flagship title this was a different time because you could do 125 issues of Excalibur. You could do 75 issues of X-Men. You could do 149 issues of X-Factor. This is a thing that you could do. And that was cool. Like, that's a cool thing. And here's thing. the thing about all of those books. As much as I love so many parts of them, they got a lot of stinkers yeah, in them. Yeah, they're not good overall. Also, if, if you look at the 125 issues of Excalibur, I would say half of them are good. If that, yes. I'd give him half. Cause 25, 40 to... When, do, when does Davis get... 1 through 67, minus the bad fill-ins, and then there's some Ellis Okay, but there's an odd amount. Of, there's like good. 20 issues of bad fill-ins yeah, there. Yeah, so I'm saying 1 through 67, minus the bad fill-ins, and then I would say there are about 20 issues altogether of the Ellis and Rob stuff that I would keep. That's probably fair. Like, I'm doing that's the math, and I think right. it adds up about half. It is just about half. Yeah. Of those. You know, that's not true of X-Factor. Like, um, no, most, <laughs> most, most of X-Factor. Most of not good. And that's before we even get to the detective agency. Mm. So, you know, I, I think that that's cool. Zach, do you want to go long with more thoughts that you have on Nate Gray before we start to wrap? No, I think, I think Nate Gray is a very fascinating character. For me, a guy who loves to be fascinated by weird stuff in comics. Everything about Nate Gray is weird. We didn't talk about the individual buck wild solo adventures that he goes on. It's all nuts. It's all just like very much them having money to throw. We said at the beginning, we were like, we have to gloss over the Spider-Man stuff and the Fantastic Wars, the PsyOps gauntlet. Like we have to just, because it doesn't matter and we're going to get, but like it's, it's 75 issues. There's a point. There's a point where Mysterio screws with him for no other reason, for like six issues, except for he's like, but maybe he'll help me find Spider-Man's secret identity. It goes on. If he knows who Spider-Man really is, he can help me. So Mysterio torments him for literally like six issues. It's the great. It's so this good. This book is um, garbage. Let me be clear. But it's also oh, yes. fascinating. Like, I, I, I do think at some point there will be... It will be collected at some point, like for real, not just in your bootleg version that someone sent you, Zach. <laughs> Once it is like collected, I will tell people like, you should read it. Should you read it because it's fine art? No. Should you read it because it's a bizarre artifact of peak X-Men? Yes. You should read 1 through 25, and then you should read the weird horny stuff with Madeline. The weirdest stuff, yeah. Like, read 1 through 25, jump to 41, and then maybe, like, read Counter X, honestly. Yeah, pick, pick one of the shaman arcs. <laughs> Frankly, they're all the same. Yeah, they're all the same. War is over if you want it. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Xmas, Connor. Merry Xmas to you, Zach. Thank you so much for being my guest. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and then plug anything that you want to plug? At ComicsXF on Twitter, ComicsXF.com. Just go there. There's, there's a lot of comic stuff. There's like four podcasts. It's a lot happening. 
the one I run is called Battle of the Atom. We rank all the X-Men stories from best to worst. We've been doing it for like six years. It's a really fun time. We just did an interview with Ben Percy that's going to be sometime this week. You should really check that out so that you know what's going on with the 10 Lives Next Deaths of Wolverine. There you go. And if you want to know more about the 10 Lives Next Deaths of Wolverine, join us here on Cerebro next week for an interview with Ben Percy. Son of a gun, are you jumping me right during this? Color. After I spent three hours talking about Nick Ray, you're jumping over me right this? No, I'm, I'm joking. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be really good. Next week, Ben Percy joins <laughs> me to talk about Arkady Rosevich, Omega Red. Then I am joined by Zoe Tunnell to talk about Laura Kinney, X-23, now Wolverine. Then Spencer Ackerman returns to the pod for an episode on Callisto, leader of the Morlocks. And we round out the month of January kicking off 2022 with a bang with Nola Fow on Irene Adler. Zach's been making a lot of faces. I like all these people. That's a pretty great slate, right? I'm pretty excited. Questions were already open as of last week. Zach hadn't heard this yet because the Prodigy episode wasn't out yet, but they've already been open for Omega Red and Ben Percy's work generally or for Laura Kinney. So those are now open, all four characters. Well, actually, you know what? It's too late now to send for Ben Percy, so don't do that. But otherwise, send in your questions. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the merch store, the Discord server, and much, much more at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at Patreon.com slash Cerebrocast, you can get an ad-free version of every episode the minute it goes up, plus secret file bonus episodes. More of those are coming soon. Thank you your patience toward the end of 2021 i did not have time to do any because the episodes got longer and longer and longer i think i'm getting that more under control now there's some really fun bonus episodes coming soon so do join up if you are in the mood otherwise thank you all so much for listening to entertainment weekly's top 10 podcast of the year (laughs) cerebro this is a crazy year i ended last year with the rogue episode so much has happened since the rogue episode And uh, more is to come. So thank you all for being here. Until next time, bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to 